Welcome to the 18th episode of the ABC Pod, the Adult Book Club with Taja and Russell. On today's episode, we are featuring Spinning Silver by Naomi Novik. Spoilers are long this episode between the 55th and 1 hour 54 minute marks as there are a lot of puzzle pieces to fit together in this story. We also discuss the strong female characters in this book, what movies or fairy tales we wanted to live in as children, and finish with our usual segments. So, with that, let's hear it. Well, Taja and Russell, they both love reading books. Taja and Russell, they both love reading books. Well, what do you do when you share such love? Well, you start a club, you start a club, an adult book club, an adult book club, and a podcast. Welcome to the 18th episode of the ABC Pod, the Adult Book Club with Taja and Russell. I am Russell and she is Taja. Hi. Hey, Uh, welcome to our 18th episode. On this episode, we are featuring the book Spinning Silver by Naomi Novik. We are very excited to get into that. It is her second standalone novel that was released back in 2018. But before we get into that, it has been two weeks. We have been freezing our butts off. Taja, how have you been surviving? With lots of layers. <laughs> I think probably wearing two pairs of pants, like leggings and real people pants, and many shirts that are fuzzy. That I was telling Russell earlier, when I woke up this morning, it was negative 15 which now it's three, three whole degrees, which like I will take above zeros any day. It was funny. The, I think two days ago, it was like 34 out. And I was like, oh, I'm going to like put a t-shirt on. Like 34 feels so warm. And the snow was quiet when you walk, which like hasn't been the case in days. So yeah, I've been, you know, working staying staying as warm as humanly possible the poor doggo when we go outside like can't stand for very long and then does this weird like paw pickup situation and yeah I I don't know it's been I feel like I had a better thought in my head before we started recording of what this would look like uh what I would talk about for the two-week time period and it all just went so yeah, let's see. I feel like there has been some interesting stuff, but maybe not. I mean, there's lots of snow and we are constantly concerned about our pellet stock <laughs> depleting. Every time we go out and get a bag, we're like, ooh, it's getting pretty low. Even though there's like a full pallet, it's, we're just preemptively scared that it's going to stay this cold for long enough that, yeah, I think you're probably suffering the same thing. Although you had probably purchased more than I had. It definitely feels like this is the coldest I remember in a long time. Uh, like for I've, a, like a long time period. Like, yeah, like it's been cold for a while. Yeah, uh, whatever day it was, it, it was 34 for you. I think it was 37 for for me. And oh I, on my walk, I like took off my jacket and walked in my t-shirt. Yeah, yeah. incredible. So. Uh, we're definitely dealing with the same thing, but we also look at, I look at my pellets every time I take a bag out of the basement. We only got about three and a half pallets this year, which usually we go for four, but I had some left over and I'm already, I had already bought another 15 bags just because you get them now before they're not there. And I'll That's probably do that again just to be safe because I'm the same way. I just, I worry about it and we're pumping so much heat right now because we're not getting that warm. <laughs> 
Well, and that's the thing. Like, we don't usually in the winter, because we, we're we not like you. We, we have another source of heat. We have some, like, forced hot water uh, propane situation. So, like, if we turn the pellet stove off, we're not going to, like, freeze pipes or freeze ourselves, which is great. But it's been so cold that we've been leaving the pellet stove on, like, even all night, which we don't typically do. Or, like, if we're gone during the day, we'll leave it on, which, like, is unheard for us. So we're blowing through the pellets more than we typically do. We should go out and get some more. I think preemptive strike is a good idea. Yeah, definitely um, take advantage of let's see. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a good uh, good tip. And I'm going to make sure that that happens. We also have been, and I don't know if I've mentioned this before on the podcast, and I don't think that this is necessarily like a pandemic-related thing, but maybe it is. Barry and I have taken up some baking like we do we bake something every weekend and then we do foot baths and foot massages and it's like really cute but the point is the the baking situation has been interesting both of us like really into great british bake-off if you haven't watched that so much fun um but i also detest like i would love to cook something i will cook you anything but baking is way too like chemistry related uh, it's science and everything has to be so precise that typically I don't like it. But last weekend we baked some diabetes in the nine by 13 pan, <laughs> straight up diabetes. It was a layer of chocolate chip cookies, Oreos, and then a layer of brownies. Oh my God. And like even just a small square is like really aggressive. We have so many left because we can only eat one like tiny square at a time. Anyway, that that's been our, our two week thing is baking diabetes in a pan. Awesome. I will say the one great thing about this weather is it makes ice skating a possibility. So we have to think about you the other day for that reason. We have been enjoying the rink. I've skated it myself a few times. I've been doing that instead of walk sometimes for exercise. Uh, And then also last Saturday, well, it had gotten up to, I think, 12 degrees. Uh, We went, uh, a couple of the guys came over and we skated and drank and played some fun games. So it's really, like I said before, I think last year we didn't skate till February. So it's really nice to like put all this effort and money into something and actually get to use it. So. And did it go better this year? Because I know you had a lot more practice. Beforehand. Yeah. yeah, we engineered it so much better this year. So it's like our awesome. first real strong year with having full coverage and not like a shower that we fall through. So it's that's so exciting. Yeah. I'm so happy for you. Yep. So that's cool. We're having another skating weekend next weekend. I think if we can get it to work out, it's funny, like trying to get everyone scheduled together and be like, yeah, I, I know it's, it's weird being like, let's do it again. But we've seen how quickly this will change, you know, global warming yeah. is a thing. So get, get the yeah. skating in while you can. Aside from that, my two weeks has only involved sanding my driveway because we get like, it's, it's been a lot of, also like, an ice skating rink. <laughs> yes. We've been getting a lot of like those ice, like storms. Like it seems like this year we're not getting as much snow with these storms, but we're getting like a couple storms. We've gotten up to a quarter inch of ice, which sounds like not a lot, but it is when it comes to ice. You yeah. I can trace amounts or a 10th, but to get a full quarter of an inch is a lot. So the driveway there's been a lot of trips to the sand uh, banks and coming back and doing that by hand. So Uh-oh. it's not fun, but also another good workout. So I feel like this winter, 
while it is kicking my ass a little bit, is getting me in a little bit better shape. So that's there nice. you go. <laughs> working um, off those pandemic pounds. <laughs> working off, yeah. It's the freshman fifteen. This is season three of the pandemic. I think everyone's got a forty-five. <laughs> It got renewed for a third season. We did. We did it. Great job, pandemic. Uh, Yeah. So I don't post this on my Instagram, but I do post some pictures of my rink. And speaking of which, if you are not following us on Twitter and Instagram, you should be. We are at Adult Book Club 21, all one word, all smushed together, Adult Book Club, the number 21, because that was the year we started, not because like everyone seems to think this is an adult (laughs) podcast for only people that are 21 or over. It just... Is the way it we works do, out. We do drink during the podcast and you have to be 21 to drink. It's true. We do drink and we do swear a lot as I was listening back to last episode. Oh no, uh, we're there dropping a lot. A, dropping a, not, not a tremendous amount, but it, it always interests me when you drop a really hard F-bomb, which I had a, a good one last episode when we were talking about gallops. So yeah. that it's, it's interesting to look back on that stuff. But Follow us on uh, Instagram and Twitter. We post videos from the show. I've been doing a throwback Thursday of all the old recommendations that we talked about on the fun. show. I like that. I like have forgotten about the ones that we've recommended. So it's a lot of you right now because you were the one who was always holding up the book. And I was just the one talking about the books I'd recommend. So I think it looks better with us holding up the book, which is now something I'm getting better at when I recommend them. But as I'm looking back at the old stuff, I would just sit here with like my hands <laughs> and be like, oh, you should read. And like, well, that's fair. I mean, sometimes you've like given the book to somebody and you don't have it. I, I or you wonder, don't have either of your copies and you need me to do it. It's true. And I do wonder, I was thinking about I've sent my dad like 30 books during the pandemic. So I'm really worried about getting all those back. But I'm also because like I, I could go through, I take pictures of every book so I can put it on my Goodreads. But I do wonder like which ones he has. Cause I don't go back to yeah. when I think of recommendations, I look at my bookshelf and like, oh yeah, this one, pick that out. That's so I can I talk about it. So um. I will say to my going to circle back to the whole two week time frame because I got a package from Russell of books and that was amazing. And I just want to share with you how cute it was. He put every book in a plastic bag in case the mailman left it in the snow, which is totally legit because that's our environment right now. Um, not that my mailman would do that. He's great, but I think it was a very good precautionary measure and I needed some big Ziploc bags. So it was perfect. Now they're uh-huh. reused. I'm glad you could use them. I I mentioned the little note I wrote. My anxiety for some reason has been going to a million lately. So for some reason, like three uh, years into a pandemic. Yeah. So I had to send, I had to send another package and like I added so much extra padding to it. So it was a a mug, a championship mug for the football league. Oh yeah. So like I added so much packaging to that. So I was worried it was going to get broken. And then with the books, I'd like had them all in there. And then I was like, no, they have to be in plastic. So I thought about like (laughs) saran wrapping them. And then that seemed like a too crazy so i was like i'll just ziploc bag them which also seemed a little crazy but as i said in the note i've just gone mad at this point so uh but i I was happy to get those up to you i had to get you uh because i had gotten an extra copy of the next book we're going to cover for christmas when i had already bought it so it was a good way to get that to you as well so it felt good sending some you know it's really funny before you told me you were sending me that barry bought it for me for christmas so now i have two copies (laughs) So some lucky listener is going to get a copy. There we go. Listen to next week's episode. We'll figure out a giveaway. You can have a copy of the book. <laughs> we will probably do it on Twitter or Instagram. Speaking of which, this episode's shout out is from Taja. So I'll let you take it away there. 
that would be to my cousin Megan, who follows us on Instagram. So I think that she also listens. I have neither confirmed nor I cannot confirm or deny that because we're not like we don't chit chat, but we follow each other on socials and she follows our podcast Instagram. So I hope that means she's listening. So hi, Megan, if you are my cousin Megan, hopefully you're enjoying it and actually listening. There you go. That's all it takes, folks. So give us a follow on Instagram. You'll hear yourself shout out or you won't because you don't actually listen to the show. But uh, we do want to keep that going. So if you do listen, send us a direct message. Let us know that you're a listener and uh, we'll give you some props to the 30 or so people that listen. So, Megan, thanks for listening. We appreciate it as always. With that, we are now moving into the book. Again, the book is Spinning Silver by Naomi Novik. And it is... Uh, the second standalone novel by Novik, her first uh, standalone novel was called Uprooted. She has also released the Temeraire series, yeah. uh, which is a nine novel series, which Taja mentioned as her random recommendation. Spinning Silver, on the other hand, began as a short story in 2016 in the Starlit Wood anthology, but then she expanded on it and released it as a standalone novel in 2018. So with that, uh, Taja, if you wouldn't mind reading the cover to us. Miriam is the daughter and granddaughter of moneylenders, but her father's inability to collect his debts has left his family on the edge of poverty until Miriam takes matters into her own hands. Hardening her heart, the young woman sets out to claim what is owed and soon gains a reputation for being able to turn silver into gold. When an ill-advised boast draws the attention of the king of the steric, grim fae creatures who seem more ice than flesh, Miriam's fate and that of two kingdoms will be forever altered. She will face an impossible challenge and along with two unlikely allies, uncover a secret that threatens to consume the lands of humans and steric alike. From the Nebula award-winning author of Uprooted comes a, a new beautifully woven fairy tale in which a the boundary between wonder and terror is thinner than a breath. Well done as always. So our story has three main protagonists, starting with Miriam, who we're introduced to on the back cover, but we also have Wanda and Irina, uh, who we meet as the story progresses. What did you think of these characters as we met them? So I really loved all of them. You, as you know, I'm a huge fan of strong female leads. Didn't <laughs> so know. the fact that all of them, I know, right? Shocker. All of the main characters essentially being basically strong, badass ladies was like right up my alley. I, yeah, I feel like there were a lot of really interesting things that all of them had to, I mean, I guess overcome would be the appropriate term. And they did it with beauty and with grace. Nice. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I think I liked all of them and I liked the sort of like connection that they all had to each other, um, which is something we'll talk about later too, just like connections in general, um, with this book, but I really appreciated that they were all their own separate people, you know, from different backgrounds, different situations, but they had a lot of similarities in terms of like inner strength, <laughs> I guess you could say, and the way that they were able to assert themselves in the world was very satisfying. <laughs> yeah, and starting with Miriam, who is our main protagonist, we see her starting out, her family is incredibly poor. Her mother comes from a very wealthy money lender in the city, 
uh, her grandfather, but her dad basically had started money lending when in their small town, but was very, he was too nice about it. So people would tell him that they didn't have any money to pay back the debt that they owed, uh, the money they borrowed, but they would have, you know, fresh wool coats or soup on their table. And meanwhile, Miriam and her parents were dying. I mean, starving to death. They had nothing on their- Her mom got really sick. Her mom was really sick. And that was kind of what propelled her to say, okay, no, I'm going to start collecting the debts now. And so we see that strength come through her to the point where both her parents were actually upset about it. Like, you shouldn't be doing this. Like, there's a lot of that, which we'll get into too, where the thoughts on what women should and shouldn't be doing or how women were viewed in this book. And I'm not saying that's how the author put it. It's just how the society of the time did was you saw these women constantly had to overcome the society they lived in expectation yeah and the expectation and show that they were stronger than what they were they could do more so miriam starts collecting those debts and kind of rules with an iron fist and suddenly those people you know you can't get blood from a stone a few of them said but somehow she started getting if it wasn't pennies or silver she would get you know chickens or yeah yeah, exactly trade could that she could sell at the market or go to the city and sell there as well so she was quickly building herself up to be more than just a, a poor girl waiting to be married off for a couple of goats or something like that, which was a good thing to see her kind of have that confidence in herself. I just need to say like the whole dowry and like buying a woman. Oh my God. <laughs> I just have, it's, it's very similar to how I feel about asking a father for a hand in marriage. What? Really? interesting yeah you don't like the idea of asking permission I I mean I don't I like the courtesy of saying hey I'm interested and hey I like I'm planning to do this but asking that implies that the father owns the daughter too much for me like and I, I I I respect the tradition I guess I mean, to a certain extent, it really just makes me mad because again, it just feels too much like a person is property and I'm not here for that. Interesting. So I not only asked Amanda's uh, dad for permission, I also asked my parents for their blessing, uh, wondering if- Oh, they that, see, that's match. cute. That, that is legit. Yeah. And I, I mean, I appreciate that you asked your parents. I proposed and I didn't ask anybody. <laughs> you just said, this is happening. I'm not giving you any dowry. Yeah. I mean, like, I don't know if that means that I wear the pants or what, but like, I mean, I didn't really get it. You wear two pair of pants. We already heard that. I do. I do. (laughs) When it's this cold out, I wear two pairs of pants. But no, I, that, that whole like bridal price situation, not, not here for that. Yeah. And it was interesting just with the whole setup of this book. It was very, it was not present day, obviously. It's, it's a fictitious kingdom, but it's also, you know, probably 17, 1800s, maybe even older than as far as like horses and sleighs and yeah, there wasn't like industry really. Right. Right. Um, So But that was something that we kept seeing over and over again was that these women would overcome kind of what society put on them and also what their peers put on them because they wanted to show that they are more than they were bargained for. So with Wanda next, Wanda comes into the story because Miriam, as her power grows with the money and wealth that she's bringing in, she decides they need somebody at the house to help out. And she doesn't want her mother to be out taking care of the chickens or cleaning the house or stuff like that. She wants her mother recovering and to get healthy again. 
so they bring in Wanda because her father owes a debt and Wanda can basically work at the house every day and work off some of that debt. And it works out well for Wanda too, because her family is struggling even more than Miriam's is, but this way she's getting a, a meal every day. And she even talks about how she'll like steal some of the bread that is supposed like the day old bread that's supposed to go to the chicken. She'll like eat that as well because they are struggling so much. So we see Wanda, you, you know, we already had the poor level of Miriam and now we have a lower level of it's Wanda. Lower, yeah. it, it's even worse, especially after her mother dies and it's just her father and her two brothers. So Wanda then kind of sees this and takes that opportunity, not only to be a good worker to the Mendelstrams, which is Miriam's family, but also to like use it to raise her position as well. I really appreciated Wanda, especially because I got the impression that she was sort of like Brianna of Tarth built, <laughs> which as we know is kind of my like, I don't want to call it my lady aesthetic because there's more to it than that. But I just appreciated how she was like a workhorse in terms of actually capable of getting all of these things done. And I just, it made my heart heavy to, for like her, for her situation, just her whole situation with her, her brothers and how her mom died. And then she was basically like carrying the team and her father was this horrible lump of a man. And I just very much appreciated how much the Mandelstams like took her in and like made her yeah she was working to pay off a debt so like obviously kind of started out a little like maybe servant master kind of situation but like they really treated her really well and then when her brother started working for them as well it was like a nice little sunshine on your face kind of feeling when she was able to get a meal or two or whatever and the parents were so like lovely to her and she kind of got a view of how a loving family acted and she'd never had that and it just I it's fresh just so fresh yeah I really appreciated that and I appreciated both Wanda's side of it where she again would work and never complain as they said but also the Mandelstrams where like you're saying that relationship grew and they really started to care for this girl uh and what happened to her so that was really nice to see as well it's kind of during this time that Miriam makes her claim that she can turn silver into gold because basically she is bringing her silver that she's, she collects pennies, she wraps the pennies, turns them into silver kopecks, is what they're called. And then you wrap a certain amount of those, which reminded me of being a kid wrapping your 50 cents. Oh, heck yeah. Wrappers and, you yep. know, oh, I get to change this in for a dollar. Uh, and then that silver she would bring to the city and change for gold bars, which I forget the name of that money. So she is now getting attention from the Sterk. And they're not sure what it is. Sorry, I just wanted to like, can I just say one more thing about Wanda? Absolutely. It has something related to this but before we go deeper into Miriam's situation the other thing that I thought was really great about Wanda how she basically learns from Miriam the magic which is basically like math and in English it might not be English words which she like writing and all this stuff that she like previously had little to zero education and she she thinks of the math that Miriam's teaching her that she's that Miriam is using to like keep her record books as like magic and I think I fucking hate math but I think it's really precious that to view that as magic because like she's seeing 
what Miriam is doing and being so impressed with collecting all these things, turning it into something else and, and going to sell things and turning that into money. And she's, she thinks that it's magic and she is so capable and learns it. I think I feel like pretty quickly. I mean, time, what is time? But like, do you get what I'm saying? Like, I was impressed by that too. And obviously like that comes in handy later on with, with Wanda's story. But I thought that that was like a really cool aspect of her character that she was so taken with it and learned it so quickly and was good at it. And it was her whole outlook on it was really cute too. Yeah. And we see that with her youngest brother, Stepan, as well as the story progresses. There's a couple of different times he's explaining something, you know, a document or something in writing that he says it's magic, just like that, like yeah. magic. It, this has now changed everything. And it's kind of that viewpoint from like a, a child where it's something mm -hmm. that, to us, don't really understand. Yeah, to us is just math, but to them it's yeah. math. So that was a cool way of of putting you in their mind frame as well, and and kind of like you said, people hate math, but to see it as magic is a totally different. It's cute uh, viewpoint. Yeah. yeah. So, so sorry. No, no worries. <laughs> so Miriam starts attracting the attention of the Stark, which are these fey creatures that are basically more ice than skin. They have this road that appears, which is like this white ice road that you're not you can't go on they have they they claim the forest nearby and any animal any tree anything that is completely white is theirs if you're caught poaching uh like a white rabbit or a white deer they'll kill you and and basically like they live in fear of these people that come raiding into their villages and cities and steal gold and bring it back with them. They also kill people and, and rape and murder. And they're not great fairy tale creatures that you want to get on the other side of. Oh, like careful of the syrup will get you. Exactly. It's it's the tale you tell your kids, but it, it's more legitimate than the boogie monster because they are yeah. real. So no, I was just gonna say one thing, and I don't know if this is maybe part of your questioning about the syrup, but something I don't think we talked about before, and something I thought was like a nice little, not necessarily a twist, but like an add an added in addition to the the fayness of them is that like people have a difficult time like remembering situations with the steric which i thought was really interesting like it makes the whole like boogeyman situation even tougher if you're like well what the heck was i even scared of or whatever i just and that was an interesting thing that like i even forgot about until this moment yeah it was a nice added layer that we gave to the steric because what ends up happening is they start seeing footprints around the house and they start that it appears, yes, at Miriam's house. And it appears that this steric is peering into the windows right above where Miriam sleeps, which is why they bring in Wanda's older brother, who's younger than her, but the oldest one, Sergey, who comes to like basically keep watch at night to give an extra set of hands in case something happens. But Wanda even talks about it the next day that Sergei stays there, she finds more tracks and she wonders at that point, should I just sweep them up and not tell anybody? Because she's worried that, you know, she's going to lose her job or Sergei will lose his job. And they're already talking about combining their little income to, to run away from their father at some point. So they don't want to lose their money. Which that was something I thought was really cool too, that the Mandelsons were like paying them, which like Miriam's grandfather in the like big city where she goes to exchange her money or put her money in the bank. He's also a money lender, but he's like very well known, like very, he's a city money lender. So it's different, but he, he had taught her, I think enough to like, there was something about like, she, so Wanda's a servant, but he was like, here's what you do to like, basically 
it was, I want to say buy their loyalty, but that's not quite right. No, it was, it was basically if she's handling your money, they're going to feel better if they're getting some of it. Yes. And so otherwise with, it's like more likely they'll steal from you or like. Exactly. Because while she's paying off her father's debt, she's not getting anything. So right. if you give her even a little something, it's going to make her more devoted to you and more likely to yeah. stay on the up and up, which is what happens. Great advice too. Great advice. Yeah. So eventually what comes of this Stark uh, stalking them, stalking Miriam, is they hear this lump as something is thrown at their front door. And when she opens it, it's a small pouch that contains, I believe, six Stark silver coins, which it's interesting as well because they capture your gaze, but then like you kind of also slide off of it as well. It's like a little bit more of their magic is dazzling your eyes. And Miriam immediately knows that he expects her to turn this into gold which sends her to the big city of Visnia uh, to talk to her grandfather, where she meets some of her aunts and cousins uh, that come to dinner. And she meets her cousins betrothed or soon to be betrothed. Beyonce. Beyonce, yeah. Isaac, who turns out to be a jeweler, which is a great feisty and Very convenient, yeah. So she brings Isaac the six pieces of silver and says, I need you to make something that sells for at least six gold. And then whatever else it sells for, we split 50-50. So he makes a ring and they sell it for 10 gold to the Duke of the town. And this is where we meet Irina, who is our third protagonist. And Irina is basically this girl who I think I say it later. She's, she's neither pretty nor ugly. Like she's got her father's big nose, I guess. But she, she has features that nobody really finds interesting one way or the other. She's just kind of there. Her mother. She's like the the daughter of like the original duchess that died. And like, I feel like it's one of those scenarios where the dad is like, you remind me too much of your mom. And so I hate you (laughs) because I loved your mom so much. But not only that, but he only married her mother because she was a descendant, a half descendant of Stark. So he thought that either one, she tricked him with her Stark magic or two, that with marrying her, he would have a beautiful daughter that would have some of that steric magic, which it doesn't right. appear that she does. So to speed our great dude. Yeah, the Duke definitely uh he, he only started liking Arena when I was, she, like, say, was valuable. He did sort of make up for it towards the end ish. He cared a little bit more for her. Uh I, I I, yeah, or I feel like he uh, we can talk about. Yeah, we'll get into it. So basically what ends up happening is she makes the ring. She ends up running into the Stark Stark King on her way back home. And he accepts the gold and basically tells her that if she can do this three times, he will take her as his wife. That's it. And she kind of laughs it off like, you wouldn't want me as a wife anyway, so whatever. And she's only doing it because she knows if she doesn't change the silver to gold, she'll be killed. So she is doing it only for self-preservation, not to become the Stark Queen. Kind of a lose-lose scenario for her. Absolutely. <laughs> and she is, she's just hoping that he won't kill basically, her. Her well, won't kill her, but also won't marry her. We'll just be like, oh, oh yeah. I didn't mean it. You know, yeah. like you're not gonna, you're not gonna hold to your word. Right. Something like that. So she does do it two more times. They make a necklace uh, mm-hmm. out of the second batch, and then the last big batch they make a crown. They also sell. They also sell that to the duke. Everything. All, yes, all this goes to the duke, and all of it goes to Irina. And this is kind of when Irina starts coming into her power. She starts feeling more confident, and in it's nothing that has changed about her. It's just the way people view her now, because as she's wearing the steric 
silver pieces, people are now drawn to her and they, they think she's so beautiful and they don't understand how they couldn't see her like this before and, and all these different things. But really she starts blossoming as well with her own kind of like scheming and, and ideas and things like that. So while it does help her to be noticed, she kind of uses that power to show that she was more than this all along as well. So I did appreciate that with Irina. And that was like the longest winded conversation about just introducing three characters we've ever had. But I think you need to know how they're all connected because that comes totally. into play a lot as the story moves on. So taking a little bit of a step back of the story, the setting of this book is the fictional realm of Lithvis, which is populated by mortals, but also the fey world of the Stair Kingdom is in it as well. I was wondering what were some of the things you liked or didn't like about the setting of this story and as we talked about before with the steric road and how they kind of come in and out of people's lives and kind of overall what did you think as you were getting into this setting wise so i think we discussed this before we started recording and i think kind of the main point was that this book could should have had a map like we talked about it before i think both of us looked in the beginning of the book like twice even though we knew there was no map looking for a map because it felt necessary like there was enough of i i don't want to say confusion but there was enough sort of that left me like huh about the the settings of things and the locate the location of stuff and like visualizing i mean we talked about too like the steric road like that was I had a hard time being like, okay, so it's there sometimes, it's there all the time, it's there, like, because sometimes they'd be in the woods and they'd see it, or they'd get a feeling and they'd see it, and then it just felt like, I don't know, I kind of, it kind of, it didn't do a lot for me specifically in terms of, of descriptions of the setting, but I did sort of appreciate that on the one hand because of what it was, like the Sterics in general, uh, like we mentioned before, are kind of geared to, not geared to, but they have this ability to like make you forget that they you saw them. And so it makes sense to me that I would have some difficulty interpreting how things looked visually. But that was a little bit of a struggle for me. Like their town that they lived in wasn't really a town. They said at one point that it like didn't even have a name. It was just like something that they like all called it. So it was basically just like a collection of houses kind of nearby to each other. And then there was this other town. And then there was just from a setting perspective, some discombobulation. Yeah. And I think it was interesting when we talk about Miriam's money lending, she like goes to the other towns to collect, you know, and it's like she spends, you know, Monday I go here and Tuesday I go here and Wednesday. And she, it's not just in her small town, but she's traveling to all these other places around. And I don't necessarily think we needed a map of that, but it, there, there was just a few places, the town that they lived in, Visnia, which was the main city where most of this took place. And then you had Corona, I believe it was called, which was like the capital city uh, where the czar was. So it wasn't like there was that much. It just would have been nice to see something where it was like, okay, and here's the woods. This is Wanda's house compared to Miriam's house. Kind of one of those things where it gives you a better idea of when Wanda's working, walking to work every day, you're, you're understanding it's, it's how far that is. Yeah. So you're, that you're was like surprisingly far. So I, I think it would have helped a little bit with that. I definitely struggled too with Sterics as we're reading it, I was like, okay, what am I visualizing here? And, and the fact that I had read the back and I understood they were fae and it's a little bit more of that fairy tale, I kind of understood that maybe there was some of those things that we weren't gonna understand. And, and we'll get into that too with spoilers where 
I wanted to know so much more about them. And I felt like there was so much more we could have gone into the Sterics, especially to learn. And I think that's just because with the mortals, I'm a mortal. I, you know, I don't live in their world, but I kind of get it. But these like ice creatures or whatever, I don't really know much about them. And I really wanted to get more involved with them and what was going on with them. So it was tough for me to have that visualization. And I kept going back to like the, the image on the book of the Steric King, you know, I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. so he's like a bluish guy with long white hair. All right. But then they talk about how he like can melt and stuff. Well, he can like, melt, but also his ice can like form rope, like armor yeah. and different stuff. So like, there's definitely a lot more to them that had that cool magic. And obviously there was a lot of magic in the Steric Kingdom, but like, there's a lot of cool stuff that I think, I just had struggled visualizing. Visually, totally. And the other thing, sorry, the other thing with the map that I can understand is what we talked about. The Stark Road came and went. So that you can't really put on a map. And I get that. Even that I didn't really understand until later on in the book. I was just like, oh, no, the road's always there. They just don't go on it. And then it's like, the road's not always there because they're in different places. And now the road's suddenly next to them or something like that. So. That was confusing to me because I feel like there was a few moments towards the beginning where it seemed like the road was always there and they just like are either close to it or far from it or whatever. But then that's not the case. I also got a lot of skill road vibes from yes. Robin Hobbook. Yes. From the Stark Road. Like that was, that was pretty hardcore. I mean, like, obviously, like you said, no mortals are going on to the Steric Road, but also like it, it gave me, yeah, I got skill road vibes. That's awesome. That, I didn't think of that, but that's, that's shout out Robin Hobb. Farsi or Trilogy. Yeah. Well, what? <laughs> so yeah. with that, the last question I had before we uh, get to us and spoilers is how this book was written as you're getting deeper into it. What did you make of Novik's writing and how many different perspectives she showed us to get the story across? Now, this was something she had chapters, but basically there would be a design of like a broken wagon wheel. That's how I took it. And that would be you changing perspective, going to somebody else in the story to get their view of what's going on. And it could be the same timeline. There was a couple different ones that were a little bit gapped out where you found the meeting point, but it was like, okay, here's their version of what happened to get there. So what did you think of that setup? I actually really enjoyed it. I know we talked about, um, we have talked about in the past, like how books that are written from one character's perspective Although in this one, it's felt a little different because it was all first person of that person, which I kind of liked. Whereas like in Game of Thrones, for example, it's not first person, but it is through that person's perspective. In any case, both of those styles, I think very much encourage you to, to read, not necessarily read faster, but just like turn the pages. It's a page turner when you're like, get to a point and you're like, well, okay, it switched, it switched to this other person, but like, I really wanted to know what was happening in that other one. And then by the time you're done with that new perspective, you're like, well, I wanted to, I don't want to go to another perspective. So it just keeps you, keeps you engaged. And I definitely really like that. I kind of appreciated the, the first person aspect of it because it gave you, I think we've talked about before how you have sort of the internal monologue of some characters and how that kind of gives you more than it would if you weren't having that. An absolutely remarkable thing and people who meet on vacation are two that I'm thinking of that like it was almost helpful to a certain extent to have that but it also was kind of hurtful because then you didn't get it from anyone else so in this case you have that from all of these different people and I think that that connects you to the character a little bit better which is maybe why 
all three of the lady protagonists were just so badass is because you had that. I mean, they were badass anyway. Yeah. But this added level of of you kind of being there with them in their own minds, I guess. Yeah, I, I get that. And then you had the supporting characters around them kind of filling in some of those gaps as how they see them. Um, right. And I think other than the three women, I think we had Magret, Magreta, Magreta? Uh, Magreta, yeah, I don't know. Mags. Yeah. Who, who is uh, Irina's basically nursemaid who has hey, helped hey, raise her yeah. through her whole life. So we get a lot of her perspective and then step on the youngest brother of Wanda, we get a ton of his perspective as well. And I think it's interesting to see how they view, you know, Irina and Wanda respectively. And you get more of kind of the sense of them because it's, it's similar to like Ruthless Lady, Ruthless Lady's Guide to Wizardry, where like we have, we know how Deli feels about herself and how she has doubts and all that. And so we get that with the main protagonist here, but then to see how the other characters see them and you get their side of view, you kind of see how, I think it's another way to show the growth where like, especially with Stepan, how he views Wanda throughout the story changes drastically. They like finally kind of come together as a family, whereas before it was more like every person for themselves as they're all trying to survive their father, especially. Um, And you learn more about Magreta as she kind of, you learn her backstory, but you also learn how important Irina is, but then you see their relationship change. It's like, she realizes that Irina, how she sees her and how important that is to her. I'm curious. I'm just thinking about the different perspectives. So there's um, Stepan, Wanda's little brother, littlest brother. There's Mags, Irina's handmaiden or handmaid, whatever. And then we do have some perspective from the czar, right? Yes, we do get but a little bit. there's nobody from... Miriam, no alternate perspective from Miriam's side, is there? I don't believe so. I think we only, I think we see like her mother and father through Wanda, but I don't think we ever actually get into their minds. Or like her grandfather or I, there's no other perspective, which I think is just interesting because like to me, Miriam is very much the, the main, main character. Yeah. I mean, I guess you'd call it an ensemble cast, but like she's the, I feel like she's the center point. But I think that that's interesting that like, I mean, to be fair, Miriam, Miriam's still the center point, but if Irina and Wanda are sounding boards for her, you know what I'm saying? Like there was, it was just interesting to me because I'm just realizing now that there was no alternative narration from and I, I think compared to the other ones, Miriam is more of the solo story as well. Sure. Like unless we were going to get the Stair King to give us yeah. perspective on things. She is, she is quite lonely uh, for most of the book. And I think mm-hmm. that like with the use of Stepan, especially, he kind of keeps us in touch with the Mandelstrams when the family splits up uh, and yeah. keeps their point of view going to keep them involved in the story. Cause obviously they're important with Max. Yeah. I'm not sure. She just gives us a better, better view of Irina. And I guess we see her more as we get, uh, as she's like kind of hiding out in the Stark Kingdom, which we'll get to as well. So yeah. I think they just serve a purpose where they're, they're filling sure. some of the gaps maybe that were in the story. Whereas with Miriam, there's you no don't have gaps. gaps. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. That's a good point. But I didn't think of that either. I will say to your point about how it kept you reading. I actually found the breaks easier to put down. 
So this book took me a little bit longer to read and it wasn't because I wasn't enjoying it. I was enjoying it. It was just, I would get to one of those wagon wheels and I'd be like, all right, I don't really want to jump into somebody else right now. And I would put it down. So I, I, and again, it didn't affect how I felt about it, but it did, it did make me read it slower, which maybe too helped with me thinking about it more, you know, cause sometimes I'll read a book in a day and then it's gone. Obviously yeah. it's different if we're going to do a podcast about it, cause I know right. I have to think about it, but <laughs> it is one of those things that I wonder if kind of, we'll get into this in spoilers with how much came back into play. If that helped me kind of make those connections and those links being able to like, put uh, it back and be like yeah. okay, let me think about that. That's a most interesting point. I typically, unless I'm like falling asleep, or whatever. I don't like to stop mid chapter. I like to get to <laughs> I hear you on that. I like with uh, the the devil in the white city, which we'll get to in my recent reads. I had to stop like mid paragraph once just because oh. I was falling asleep. And it has a lot of breaks in it too throughout the chapters. But like, and, and I what happens? Sometimes you gotta. When I wake it. up, when I wake up, that I pick up the book and I'll read it to get to a breaking point. So. I know it's just so weird and jumbled in my head that it's like, that's not a natural stopping place. Yeah. I hear you on that. Before we get into our Get to Know Your Podcasters moment uh, and spoilers, the last thing I wanted to mention is we see Wanda's world is turned upside down as early on she has the death of her mother. And basically she becomes the one who has to carry the load for the family. Even when she starts working for the Mandelstrom, she's supposed to cook dinner and everything else. And if she doesn't, she gets beaten by her father. And they have this, they have a steric tree, which is just this white, beautiful tree that her mother had a lot of miscarriages. So there's five uh, miscarried babies buried underneath. And then when her mother dies, they bury her there as well. And that becomes something they keep going to, to talk to their mother, all three children do and ask her for help. And when, the tree like responds. Like her yeah. Mom. The tree like touches the cheek with a branch. Yeah. That's like, oh. fuck, I wish I had a tree like that. It'd be cool. So as cute. It's the giving tree, you know, yeah, for real. So oh. they, they stole my spirit animal, but, uh, yeah. but, um, so what ends up happening with that is one day Wanda comes home from the Mandelstrams and there is the local brewer. I think they call it Krupka or something like that. Basically he, he makes, yeah he makes booze and her father is a drunk. So he sells her for a jug of alcohol a month and that's her dowry. And I think maybe a goat, but probably Which not. It's like less than some other people have offered, I think in the past too. Yes. I- this was the important dislike that man so much everyone dislikes that man so what ends up happening is she says no she basically knows that she's worth more than that she's not going to be the one that enables her father to drink just because he doesn't have the money to buy his own booze she says no he starts beating her and then goes to start beating her with like the fire poker step on who at this point has grown in his relationship with with wanda and loves her whereas before he just kind of saw her as you know I don't know. The it was older, their dynamic yeah. grabs the poker to try to stop his father from hitting Wanda. They struggle. He's eventually thrown off. And then Sergey, the other brother, steps up and pushes Who's the like, father, who is jacked at this point. He's yoked and oaked like an oxen. And he pushes the, the father. He trips over Stepan, falls into the fireplace, knocks over their pot of stew. And basically, he like boils his face with that while also being on fire and 
is killed in front of this witness. And because of that, Wanda knows they need to flee. So they send Stepan to uh, the Mandelstrams to take care of him and her and Sergei run away. So I didn't really cover that in spoilers. So I wanted to make sure we got that point across before we jump in there for everyone that's still with us that hasn't read the book. But (laughs) with all that that you know, before we get into that, this book is loosely based on the fairy tale of Rumpelstiltskin where they turned straw into gold, I believe it was. So I wanted to know if you could insert yourself into a fairy tale, which one would it be and why? And if if there's any story of like, when you heard a fairy tale or it could be a Disney movie, because a lot of Disney movies were from fairy tales like Cinderella, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, Hansel and Gretel, a lot of those were originally fairy tales. So it may not be one that you think of as a fairy tale, but which one would you put yourself into? Or is there a story of like one that really stuck with you as a child kind of idea? That's really tough. If you have an answer, I encourage you to go first. So for me, I have one that I thought of because this was always something when I was a little kid, I remember hearing the story of the cobbler and the elves. And for those that don't know it, basically it's this really poor shoe cobbler who like, it just kind of like is getting by making soles for old shoes. And I'm not sure if he like prays for help or what, but basically what ends up happening is these elves start coming in at night while he's sleeping and making these beautiful shoes that they then sell. And he starts making more and more money and like is no longer poor. And the elves keep coming and keep coming and they turn him into like the cobbler that everyone wants to go to. And And the reason this always stuck with me is I legitimately thought that like elves would come in my room at night and like play with my toys or like leave me presents or something like that. So like, I always wanted to like catch the elves and get to play with them. Now, you know, I was young. I was only like 16, 17 at the time. So I didn't understand. (laughs) That's not true, but I I really did. I thought, I thought there'd be like these magical creatures that kind of came and visited you at night, like played around in your, in your house and just did funny, silly things. You know, it's probably the precursor to Elf on the Shelf. Elf on the Shelf. Yeah, but uh, it never happened. And I never caught the uh, the cobbler's elves, but I always thought it'd be super cool to live in that world where little magical creatures came and like visited you at night and played around in your shop or whatever, so. That would be super cool. Okay, so like that's made me think of two things. One is that, and I don't know if they're maybe like loosely connected, but in any case, Similar to yours, like I had always been, I think Toy Story and like conceptually really fast, like fascinated me. Like I had so many stuffed animals growing up. There was like a little hammock above my bed and all the stuffed animals were in it until I was probably like 14, probably older. I sleep with a stuffed animal still and I'm 30 something. (laughs) Anyway, the point is I love the idea of the toys being alive and like loving the kid so much that they would like want to stick around and I treated my toys really well so I assumed my toys would love me and like I I don't know I just I like that idea of like sentient toys that aren't chucky or creepy or want to kill you did did you ever see the movie small soldiers oh I think so with like the commandos that come alive that was I bought Gorgonites thinking that they would come alive and play with me. <laughs> so I, I completely understand where you're coming from. I love that. And then also like, I think it's sort of like reminiscent of like the borrowers. Do you remember that? I've been, um, yes. 
So like, I also had this, I had like a pretty solid imagination as a kid. Like my friends and I, Sinbad, Emily and I would play make-believe. We had this whole make-believe land in my backyard called Perstump and you'd get into it by standing on this tree stump in our yard. (laughs) And there was like griffins and like all this cool shit. Um, Emily and I were so cool. I mean, we're still cool, but we were really cool back then. Shout out Emily. Right. In any case, I always have like envisioned or fantasized about like little people living in, you know, like when malls were a thing. Yes. Yeah. All right, Jubilee. Right. <laughs> when like they've got these little like things with one bunch of plants in them, little like planter bed things. Yeah. And I totally, totally fantasize that they were like little people that lived in these like in the mall and then in the like when everybody's gone from the mall they like come out of their little forest and they go about their business inside the mall but like (laughs) that it would just be borrower style small people that live in the mall forests (laughs) i mean i I love that i really do i think it's great that it's uh that you had it cordoned off to just malls uh, it was just balls. I mean, like, where do you find really cool, like, planter situations with, like, really badass-looking plants? Not many places. Malls. I always wondered that, too, when you see, like, the scale buildings, like, when they, like, yes. the mall or something like that, where they have, like, this was when we were planning it. Here's the scale building that we have on display. Like, that's where I would picture the borrowers, like, living or like a like a train store, like a little yes. model train store where there's like yeah. little, little buildings. Yeah. So basically so, yeah. we just, we both just wanted things to come alive and play with us basically. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Good to know. Yeah. I will say the other one that I heard before, which wasn't really a fairy tale. It's more of a tall tale, but I, I believe it's Wild Bill Hickok who lassoed a tornado and rode the tornado. Right. I think. I always thought that'd be cool until I realized how terrifying tornadoes are. So yeah, I mean, like until you watch Twister, you mean? Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, nineteen ninety-six really changed my yeah. thoughts about lassoing a tornado. Twister is an amazing movie. <laughs> so good. Um, all right, so there's your get to know us better. Uh, now, now you know we both were just children that wanted to play with tiny little animate objects. So not crazy yeah. podcasters thanks for asking no uh so with uh, we can't that, i mean clearly if the both of us had this it's we're not the only ones like yeah. i'm sure many of our listeners also wanted small borrower people to be in their lives or animate toys absolutely so with that we are going to move into spoilers we're going to give the song another try i already forgot how it goes but we'll see how it happens uh so this is the part that we're going into spoilers. If you don't want to be spoiled, get out. But this is the part that we're going into spoilers, talking more about what the book is about. Spoilers. And there's quite a bit here, as we'll discuss. There's a lot of connections that are made throughout this book. So it's a big book, and I wrote about a page. So <laughs> us, folks, sit back, breathe in. Here we go. Miriam is given Stark silver three times in different amounts. She brings this to Visnia, the city nearby, and has a jeweler turn the silver into a ring, a necklace, and a crown, each time receiving more and more gold from the Duke of the city who buys the jewelry. Having successfully turned the silver into gold three times, the Stark King takes her unwillingly back to his kingdom and makes her his wife. 
The Duke adorns his daughter, Irina, who is neither pretty nor ugly, with the enchanted jewelry, and suddenly she captivates all those around her. She is presented to the Tsar, who decides that night that they are to be married. The Duke is pleased, but Irina quickly learns that the Tsar, while young, beautiful, and charming, only has these things because of a deal made with a demon that still resides inside of him and wants to consume her for her power. Irina also discovers that while wearing her jewelry, she is able to escape from the mortal realm into the Steric Kingdom through any reflective surface and does this many times to escape her husband and the demon inside of him. During one of these escapes, she comes upon Miriam, and together the two decide to pit the demon and the Steric King against each other in hopes that they will destroy each other. The plan is to have a confrontation in three days' time at Miriam's cousin's wedding. In order to get to the wedding, Miriam must bargain with the Steric King for, tra- for passage. He tells her if she can convert all the silver in his three large storerooms into gold in the three days' time, he will take her to the mortal world to dance at her cousin's wedding. Knowing the task to be almost impossible, but her only hope, Miriam agrees. She sets to work with her three servants who become her bondsmen. As she works on turning the silver to gold in the first two storerooms, they work to move the silver out of the third storeroom so she will achieve the gold through trickery. The king is surprised when she achieves the task and upholds his promise to take her to the wedding. It is during this time that Miriam learns that as she changes the stark silver to gold, she is trapping in the sunlight and warmth of the mortal world and helping to chill the stark kingdom. Because of this, the mortal world is in the grasp of a never-ending winter. At the wedding, the Tsar and the Stark fight, uh, king fight, and we learn that the demon inside the Tsar is a Chernobog. The Stark king appears to have won until Wanda, her brothers, and Miriam's parents help the Tsar to bind and capture him. They do this to save Miriam from having to go back with him, not because they do not fear the Tsar. After the Steric King is led away, Miriam learns that she has now condemned the entire Steric Kingdom to the Chernobog, and they will all perish. She cannot live with this, so she decides to save the king and make him promise to leave the mortals alone. He eventually agrees, but only to do it once the Chernobog is dealt with. They make their escape, but the king is damaged and cannot make it home without Miriam and her family's help. After the escape, the Chernobog, Chernobog is enraged, and in order to save herself and Lithvis once more, Irina leads him through a mirror to the Steric Kingdom and sets him loose. When the king gets back to his kingdom, he asks Miriam to come with him to help defeat the Chernobog, and together they do. They vanquish him back to the mortal world, where he is weakened and defeated by Irina, and the phrasing of a deal that they had previously made. With the Chernobog defeated and removed from the Tsar, both kingdoms begin to heal. With the first winter storms, the Steric King returns Miriam to her family, only to propose to her, and they are eventually wed. During this, we also have Wanda's storyline, which is also important in that her and her family lend support and necessary pieces to Miriam and Irina at different times. Wanda and her two brothers have to flee their home after her brother Sergei kills their father in defense of Wanda. Sergei and Wanda find a cabin in the woods and fix it up to repay its kindness for taking them in and feeding them. They send their brother Stepan to, the, to Miriam's parents because he is too young to keep up with them. The house that they have found used to belong to a witch and is placed half in the mortal world and half in the Stark kingdom. Because of this, Wanda and Sergei are able to help feed and keep warm Irina and her maid Magreta as they hid from the Tsar. They do this unknowingly, but think that the house is magic and how things suddenly appear and disappear. Eventually, the family is reunited after the Mandelstams are lost on their way to the city and Stepan finds Sergei chopping wood for the house when he wakes up in a dream state. They go to Visnia together and are at the cousin's wedding where they lend their strength to bind the Steric King. 
Afterwards, when Miriam rescues him, Sergei helps to carry him back to the house in the woods where the others are waiting. The only way the Steric king is able to get back to his kingdom is because they plant the nut from the white tree that Stepan was given by his mother in the tree when they had to flee the home. There's a lot there. I know that that probably sounds confusing, and hopefully we will now discuss it to make it make more sense. Well, and that was something that, I mean, it was a great recap, but also the fact that when you're reading it, it was not confusing. You know what I mean? Like every all the little pieces and, pu- and bits of it were coming together so nicely as you were reading that it didn't, it, there's no way to recap it without just like, read, read the book. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It's, it's like trying to, to sew all these different pieces together that she did so wonderfully in the book. And that's kind of what yeah. we're touching on with the perspective, like the ability to go back and forth between the perspectives, allow you to know that this is what Wanda is doing. And this is what Miriam's doing. And but like I said before, they do have those moments where like they have a meeting point, like where mm-hmm. when Miriam uh, together. Yeah, where Miriam finds Irina and Magretta in the Stark Stair Kingdom. Then we go back and we learn how Irina got there. So like it does make sense how it's written, you know, when you try to put it into a one page of a word document. So much it will more get difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Can I, I just want to bring up one thing that as you're reading the recap, like the the point in the story where Mags and Arena are taking refuge at the at the cabin in the Steric Kingdom, and Wanda and her brother are in the same cabin in the Sunlit World. They are, like you said, kind of like exchanging, helping helping each other without really realizing that that's what they're doing. And there was this neat moment where Wanda is trying to, like, they think that they have to pay back the cabin basically for the use of it. And they're, she's like knitting something like a mattress, but Mags is like way better at doing it. So like she undoes what uh, Wanda had done and redoes it and then when Wanda wakes up it's like better or you know it, that whole exchange while not really being an exchange was really impressive and then how at one point Wanda uses so she she's looking at Mags's version of something that she had just knitted sewn whatever I don't know what's the pro- loomed was it crochet one or the other knitting. i want to say this knitting anyway things we don't know um, how to do <laughs> i do know how to knit Thank things you. i don't know how to do <laughs> <laughs> i don't know how to crochet in any case she she like studies what had been done and like creates a mathematical like diagram for herself about the stitches and like how to do it and she recreates it with magic with the math again and like i thought that was just she's so freaking resourceful (laughs) and just like I thought that little moment was really cool because like you were saying it was neat how they were kind of helping each other without realizing that they were doing it and then she was like I'm gonna take it a step further and use this other thing that I learned to help me do this thing that I'm learning how to do just like really great characters yeah and it was it was really cool to have their reaction both of their reactions mm. as you know uh thing, things would appear or disappear from from the uh cottage but also you know like magda would even say like oh like how beautiful it was like i must have fallen asleep i don't remember like doing this much but yeah. obviously it's, it's so beautiful and then like yeah what you were saying where wanda and her family because they think everything is magic and obviously where maybe math we wouldn't consider magic you know suddenly something being knit in front of your face you probably would think would be magic uh you know she thinks it's the house telling 
her what they want, you know, to repay it because, you know, when they found it, it was in decay and they're so thankful to have this place. And like they had, they had food there to make porridge and wood to keep warm that they think they have to keep doing more and more. And they're like, okay, this is the house saying, you know, it needs a new mattress cover. So that's what she's knitting or whatever she's doing. And it's like, no, no, the house wants it this way. So she like figures it out to make sure she's doing it. So yeah, it was definitely another cool moment where we're tying these worlds together and these people who at that point Wanda and Irina don't know each other but like they're working together without having ever actually met which was super cool yeah that was neat I was like wondering about that like from a visual standpoint that that moment in the story I thought was really neat just like I kind of expected it to be one of those scenarios where like alternate universe style where like maybe for a second you can catch a glimpse of somebody but that never happened and I I thought it was really just like conceptually very cool that that whole moment. Yeah, I agree. And the fact that the witch had built that cottage there, as we later learned from the Stir King, uh, half in the mortal realm and half in the Stir realm to be left alone. And it was one of those things we were talking about earlier where we didn't really understand where it was located because it seemed like it was right. very difficult to find. And then it was like 30 and minutes from town. Um, yeah. And there's a neighbor over there. with. Like, yeah. But we wondered if that was maybe part of the fairy tale where it's like hmm. the, the cottage comes to you when you need it. You know, it's kind of like if it deems you worthy, it will be there for you. So I don't know if that was the point of it or not, but I like to think that it was. Same. And I feel like that that fits with like what happens later on in the story. Like it, it suits their needs. And like, yes, in the moment when like they're both in the two different kingdoms and like you were saying, they're kind of helping each other out. Like um, Sergei fixes the door and the next morning Max wakes up and is like, the door is fixed. Yeah. <laughs> or Irina comes in and she's like, did you do this? And like, I think that that's just a really cool concept of like it, not it provides because at that point they were providing for each other. But later it seems like the cabin relocated to be in a more convenient location for them. Yeah. Whereas like for the witch, it probably was wherever it needed to be for her. Yeah, exactly. So getting into our questions for spoilers, I think it's easiest just to kind of discuss the journey they each take mm-hmm. since it is individual, but together at the same part, same point. Uh, so starting with Miriam, she changes the chest full of silver into gold when she makes the crown for Irina. And then the Star King just takes her, like literally just takes her uh, to his kingdom. <laughs> That was something I thought was really cool too. I know we talked about like the Sterics, like having that ability to kind of like make it so that you don't see them or don't remember them or whatever. But there's a few times. And I think the when he takes her is one of them where she's with her parents, but her parents like don't even she hear wasn't. the knock on the door. Oh, she wasn't? No. So she was with her family. She was with her grandparents, but she had gone um, to the city by herself. Right. That's but right. it was like but there was a the lot family of doesn't recognize. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I think it was the celebration of the engagement. The so engagement. Her, her whole okay. family's at the house, but then there's a knock on the door and she's the only and one. And only she it. hears it. Yeah. yeah. Like that, I thought was a really cool aspect of things and how, like, similarly, you know, her, she left, she left with the Steric King and like even her parents all the way in their town, their little home don't remember why she left like they start to forget her entirely yeah until there's like certain mementos in their house that like the mrs mandelson mandelsham like holds on to to be like no they keep thinking of miriam remember miriam kind of thing so that that with the viewpoint of stepan too like when he goes to be with them and like you said like we're kind of like are given his perspective to like keep track of the parents the mandelsons and like the fact that he keeps being like, she's looking for something. She doesn't yeah. know what she's looking for, but she's looking for something. And like he, I mean, 
kid, I don't like kids. <laughs> I don't want kids. I don't like kids. That's very harsh to say, but like kids have this ability, I think, to be very uh, emo- emotive, not that, uh, empathetic, you know, like yeah. where he's recognizing all these things that he doesn't quite understand because he's not mature enough to understand, but he does kind of understand. Like he recognizes like when someone's smiling, but not smiling or like when somebody is like, you know, being fake or whatever, but he doesn't really know how to like express these things. So seeing from his perspective, what was going on with the Mandel Sams, I think was like a really neat way to show all of that situation. Cause like from a, from an adult perspective would have been, would have been different and less fairy tale-ish. Yeah. And I do wonder if that's another part of the fairy tale where the kids were able to remember a little bit more. Yeah. Like he didn't know she was looking for Miriam. Cause I don't think he, he didn't really, he didn't know, really Miriam. know Miriam. Yeah. Right, but, but, Wanda, but Wanda was able to hold on to her and remember mm-hmm. her and remember that like Miriam was out there somewhere. That I think is one of the things that made me think that maybe she did have some more of a connection to the steric with the tree and stuff, because like, even with the footprints, everybody else seemed to like, kind of not, she, she held on to stuff way better than everybody else did. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. So yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's another one of those things that wasn't necessarily overly explained, but like, it wasn't like she remembered everything. She still struggled with it too. It just seemed like she was able to bring it back a little bit more and maybe that's just because she again she needed the money so it was more important to her what was happening obviously yeah. she didn't want her world to change uh even if that's right. not selfish obviously if you were in that position you wouldn't either i would be yeah <laughs> so uh with miriam she's taken back to the stair kingdom they have this ceremony where the stair king couldn't care less but as he says numerous times he's a man of his word and they get married and then they Sus. like Sus married. yeah yeah, they get quote unquote married. And then uh, he brings her up to her chambers and they're like awkwardly preparing for the wedding night. And Miriam's like, ah, no, 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 I don't want to do that either. And he's like, I must, you know, there must be a bargain here. Uh, so she basically bargains to get three answers a night from him rather than having to share a marital bed. Marital relations. So that- a gallop. Is, Yeah, a gallop. So that is kind of how- we learn more about the Stark, Stark and their situation is through these three questions, which to me was a little frustrating because like I said earlier, I wanted to know more. And obviously I'm not in control of Miriam's questions and her questions are different than mine. So I felt like we got some of the picture, but there were so many more questions as we're introduced to more people. And a big thing with the Stark is not to give out your name. Uh, It's another one of those situations, we've talked about this in other books, but there's power in your name uh, and there's magic in your name. So you don't give it out. So she gets some servants that she names Fleck and Saw, uh, basically because she needs something to call them and they don't give her her name. They won't answer her questions because they're servants and they've been told by the king not to answer her questions. And then she goes for a ride one day and she names that guy chauffeur, basically, is how I read it. And uh, yeah. <laughs> so, like, she creates these people around her just so she has something to call him. Because again, with our world, that's so natural. What am I going to call you if I don't call you Taja? And to them, it's like, you can't know there's too much power there. Like, I won't give you my birth, my real name, my given name, I guess. I also kind of got a little bit of the impression that like those people of the class that they were the servants didn't necessarily even have names. 
That is definitely Maybe another that's not accurate, but it, it felt like their reactions to her giving them a name was like way stronger than it would be if it if they already had their own. I, I would agree with you there because as we learn later, when she names Fleck's daughter, okay. um, the the father of that child didn't deem her worthy of a name, so didn't give her one. So it's like bonkers. Freaking men, am I right? So, (laughs) so we're learning a little bit about this as Miriam is. And then we learned that the whole reason he took her basically is once you prove you can do something three times, it's basically magic. So she's like, you know, I didn't really turn that silver to gold. And he's like, you did, you did it three times. So you did. And then she finds that when she's in the stair kingdom, she can actually physically turn silver into gold rather than through trade. I gotta admit, I was like worried for her. I was like, girl is just smart and clever and managed to turn silver into gold and she's gonna get there and it's gonna be a flop. So that was that was kind of cool that she actually had this neat power that was essentially magic. Yeah, and it was interesting because we see the king even says, like, I'm stuck with you now. Like he sees little value in her. He's like, I'm stuck with you. You know, you're a stare queen and this stinky mortal, ew. And they should be able to freeze the kingdom cold and they should be able to have the power to like push summer away and all this stuff. And all you can do is a child's trick, basically. You're way too warm for me. Pretty much. So when Miriam does accept that challenge in order to get to the cousin's wedding, so she does on her ride with chauffeur, she ends up running into Irina and Mags as they're running from the czar. And she brings her to the house in the woods because chauffeur knows where it is. And that's where they come up with the plan to meet in three days time. And she knows that, okay, I've got to figure out a way to get to the, to the mortal kingdom with the stair king. So that's when she goes back and talks to him and he gives her the job of of changing the three storerooms, each one being bigger than the last. And basically she, she just says yes. Without yeah, without them. even asking how yeah. big they are. I thought that was like really cool. Cause like typically Miriam's very like savvy when it comes to that stuff. But she's also like kind of the first to call herself out when she's like, shit, should have should have checked on that. I think he the king even says, like, I expected you to barter kind of situation. Yeah, he was like, That was too easy. He's this is sus. Yeah. So she sets to work turning the silver to gold and she like can do, she has like a a blanket that she puts, she puts all the silver out one layer deep and she can change it all to gold at once. And then she learns that she can do two layers deep. But even with that, it's going super slow because there's so much silver. And as the days go on, uh, she only has three days. The, The king comes to her every night for her three questions. And I believe it's the second night or the last night before, you know, her time is gonna run up. He seems super excited and happy. And this is when she, kind of, I believe, puts together that she is trapping the sunlight in the gold, the warmth of the mortal realm. But what he doesn't know is that she's created the Bonds people uh, with Flex, Sop, and Chauffeur, which basically, if they achieve this, they are risen to her level or right below. Which is pretty freaking high, considering she's a steric queen. Yeah, so they they would rise from servants to nobility, not just for themselves, but for their children as well. Their progeny. Yes. So what they're doing in the third storeroom is they're shoveling as much of this silver as they can, and they're dumping it in the cavern behind them with the river, just getting it out of the storeroom, because it wasn't to change all the silver, it was to change all the silver in the storeroom. 
So because of that, again, it's another one of those fairy tale things, which we'll touch on on a later thing where you have to get your phrasing right. You know, a lot of it comes you down to- You can't wish for wishes and you'll get fucked. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, Miriam plays that trick on the king and the king is actually like- Impressed. Impressed by her uh, and her guile. So he basically is, tells her like, for you, take your time to get ready. We will dance at your cousin's wedding. And she's like, what do you mean? And he's like going to change time for her. Cause it's she did fine. such a great, just, like, put a pin in time for you. She did such a and great magic, did. such a grand magic that he could only repay it by doing one as well. So that's super, super cool. So that's, how we, awesome. that's how we get the stair King to the wedding. Now how Irina gets the Chernabog there. So did we discuss how she like even found out about the fact that the czar was a. So she, no. So she knew there was something different in him, obviously. And she, they had an experience when they were children where he was like killing squirrels in the garden. I have, I have like a personal, I I take personal affront to that. You didn't burn the book as soon as you heard that part. I was disappointed. And he was like. National Squirrel Appreciation Day today, by the way shout out squirrels so she would or he would kill them and then leave them for her to find so she already knew there was something bad inside of him didn't know it was a demon and then she was so afraid of their wedding night she had kind of already experienced seeing the stair kingdom but not knowing what it was in the reflections when she wore the jewelry so she just took the risk and kind of went through and it was while she went through she was just standing on the riverbank freezing basically looking through the mirror and that is when she discovers the Chernabog as he begins talking to this fire demon that comes out of him and like basically gains power from the fireplace and like and screaming. fucks the room up like whoa. Yes, trying to find her. And yeah. she learns that the Chernabog is the one that told the czar to marry her because he can sense the steric blood in her from her mother. And I'm sure the steric jewelry helps accentuate all of that. Yeah. So because of that, Irina is now trying to find a bigger prize for him. So she doesn't get consumed. Meanwhile, she also learns, I don't, she must've learned it from Miriam that the Starks were the one controlling the weather because she becomes like a very, like overnight, this is something that she is just so, um, people think so little of her, but like overnight she becomes such like a plotting plan. Like she put Tyrion Lannister to shame with the, the things she was planning and thinking up for, for the kingdom of Lithbis. And sure, like politically herself. speaking. Yes, exactly. I gotta say, I always attributed that to her being the kind of person that can be in a room people ignore, but she's like listening and taking it all in the whole time. So she probably like knew all that before and like has had all of that waiting in the wings, like in her her repertoire but like nobody cared to ask her questions or think that she had an opinion do you get what i'm saying like yeah no absolutely like she that was her she was just there so like people didn't didn't think about what they talked about in front of her exactly she was just background she was never going to be anything and i think we kind of got that with when the other princes or whatever of the realm would come to her dukes or her dad's table, she would be there. And like, not even her father would really recognize her. So what you're saying right. makes sense where she had all this knowledge 
that she had just accumulated because people thought nothing of her. But uh, so I assume that she found out from Miriam, because I don't remember that the Starks are the one controlling the, the weather. So she knows that in order to save Lithvis, because now it's like June and they just got a foot of snow and it's still snowing. So obviously yeah. the weather is, is screwed up. So she basically, when they meet, contrives that idea to pit the two against each other. And she presents it to the czar who presents it to the Chernabog, basically saying like, you, I will deliver kingdom to you, uh, Sturt King to you, and you will leave me and mine alone. And we see he still wants to make a bargain with her. And she says, I don't want anything from you. Like she can see what it's doing to the prince or the czar. I mean, with, with this control that he has over him, like you, again, it's like a fairy tale. You ask for something simple and then you have a demon. It's in your not body. simple. <laughs> <laughs> so that was kind of how the, the lust for the steric is what gets the Chernabog and the Tsar to agree to go into this fight as well. So we have all that going on. We have Wanda's part in it that we talked about where basically they're traveling, they end up traveling together and they get to the cousin's wedding as well. And that brings us to this big fight scene. I just, because of the cousin's wedding is like in the town of Visnia. Yeah. So Irina's father is the Duke of Visnia. So like they go to that town, obviously, to like visit. I don't know. I don't remember what the guys she, I mean, it was just like, we're going to get the Sarah King and he's going to be there. Was that it? So they were getting the other royalty together to announce the wedding of the, of the other cousin, Ilias, right. and the princess to, to form that alliance. Right. Okay. Okay. But my, the point I wanted to make was that I appreciated when like they got to Visnia and um, Irina's having this conversation with her father and she basically is like, here's the lowdown daddy-o. And he's like, okay, I have this place. I have, he's like here for it. And I was like really surprised that it was that, I don't want to say about face, but up until that point, I feel like he didn't respect her at all. She was just like a, a tool. Well, she also, she also talks to him about the Chernabog. Yeah, no, I know. I mean, right. So I think she's pointing out to him that like, we will be in power. And I think that's part of it too. So I think okay. part of it is the Duke it's a little is more like, self-serving than I was thinking it was. So, but I think part of it is he's proud of her for coming up with this, obviously. But I think the part where he's like lending a hand and like more interested in going on with it is because one, he knows that this Lithvis is already kind of on a knife's edge. There's a lot of people yeah. happy with the czar, uh, but this will also put his family in power, you know, regardless of what happens to the czar. If he does die, then she's still the czarina and she right. would marry and then it would be his prodigy, pro- prodigy? Right. Proge- uh, progeny. Progeny. Thank you. On the seat. On the taken. throne. <laughs> the seat yeah, throne. I yeah. was impressed, though, with like how, you know, and I think she even said something like after he she gives him the lowdown of what's going on with like Chernabog and, and Disney or, or with this or whatever. And the situation he like, I would have expected just what she did, that he would like tell her she's crazy or like whatever. Like at no point was he like, this is bonkers. He took it all at face value, which was really surprising to me. And like kind of obviously like you kind of need that to happen for the story to progress. But it was impressive because up until that point, his character seemed very like meh about anything. Yeah. Well, except for the politics, obviously, but yeah, very meh about anything that had to do with Irina for sure. 
Yeah. And I guess I was maybe hoping that like a little bit, uh, maybe it was the case where he kind of changed his opinion because she was speaking so eloquently or with such ability about the politics, because that is kind of his Jimmy jams that like that, that he maybe grew a little bit of respect for her or could see where she wasn't wrong yeah. <laughs> about things. And I, I guess I want to call it respect, but I mean, he's just kind of, he was kind of a meh person in general, but I guess what I'm getting at is I was impressed that he took it the way he took it and did what he did to help. Yeah, I see that. So moving forward, what ends up happening is they have the face off at the wedding and the stare king appears to be destroying or he's not appearing he is destroying the Chernoblog and he has basically held him by his name in the fireplace and he's going to win and then Miriam and Irina get involved by trying to wrap the chain around him and then as he's trying to throw that off Wanda and her brother then Sergey grab the chain and they're holding him tight by the chain and then Stepan grabs on and then the and Mandelstam, then the Mandelstam. Stepan, and they're all holding the, the stair king and while this is happening the Irina is like getting the Chernobog or the Tsar back out of the fireplace and bringing him back to life. And they set the fire of 12 candles, which is like is the first bind. And then they're able to bind him with the silver chain by using her necklace of silver oh, yeah. to, to close the, the clasps. So that was another nice tie in moment there. And then they basically lead him away and, and Miriam thinks she's free and the Chernobog's going to feast on the steric until she realizes. And, and this was a moment we talked about before. But the, the Stark King, Stark King basically says something to the point to Miriam, like, I have underestimated you three times. And right. my lady, I will never do that again. You have like beyond impressed me. And I'm not, he's like, not even mad. He's, he's mad at himself, not her. Because, he's like, I fucked up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He, he, he fucked up by underestimating her and not seeing her value and her worth. And let her, and her abilities, yeah. Uh, so that was a real, like, especially for the, the king who was always very angry. Uh, to oh, have that. very like full of himself, like, I am big man on campus, very true. So, uh, to have that moment, I thought was like a really nice moment to, to show some value to our ladies for a change from the men. So, that was nice to see too. But eventually, like the next day, mm. Miriam eats at her. And she realizes she has to free him. So they do. Well, and I think that there's something to be said for like one of the reasons that she feels so like guilty now about the situation is because it wasn't immediately apparent to her or to anyone really that like the Chernobog would be going after the Steric Kingdom. He didn't just want the Steric King. He wanted the entire kingdom, which means that all of her um, bonds people and like the daughter of Fleck, who she literally like maimed and who has, she has this like connection to now are all going to be like eaten up by this douche, this fiery douche. <laughs> and I think that she has a whole new level of responsibility weight yes. on her shoulders now for being like, I just handed over the keys literally to a kingdom whoops yeah and re regardless of how she felt being married quote unquote as the stair queen she does feel that that need to protect her people like you said even if it's just those four that's still four people that are depending on her to do the right thing 
Well, and I also feel like it's a, a double-edged sword because on the one hand, she has the knowledge now that like she has been instrumental in continuing the winter in her realm, but then also offering up the Steric kingdom to the Chernabog, like lose-lose again in that scenario. Because like if the Steric king is, is let to go on in, to his own devices, he probably would continue to fuck with her world. But if the Chernobyl goes, then all these people, all these four people, but people that she's like come to actually care about and like matter to her now are going to be affected. And like rock in a hard place, Miriam, rock in a hard place. Yeah, for sure. And you see it when the Stair King is captured the next day, it's like the middle of spring or middle of summer. Yeah. Like the rye is, you know, six feet tall and like all the birds are singing and like those starved animals are just out eating because it's been so long since they had food. So you have this like beautiful moment that Miriam's looking out on, like, look how peaceful the kingdom is, you know, regardless <laughs> of, you know, the Chernobog will eventually ruin it, but look how peaceful this kingdom is. But also I know the price of this when all these people don't, and that's a, a big struggle in her. So she decides to, to free him. But she goes with a plan, thinking that she will basically bind him with the three questions she gets every night for not sharing her marital bed. She will bind him into to agreeing to not, to basically his freedom to not then come after the mortals. It's the winter, yeah. And so she does go with him to the, with the three questions, and she does get him to agree to leave the mortals alone and to not constantly have winter, but there's the part about the Chernabog where he says, I'll only do this if, if we deal with the Chernabog, basically. Once he is no longer in power, because he's seen it in his realm, as soon as the Chernabog came to power, his realm started melting, which is why the Steric in Retribution have been raiding more and taking more gold and been trying to prolong the winter he's because their kingdom is melting every day because the Chernabog is in power. So it is one of those interesting struggles, balances of power. So she gets him to agree to the two things, two out of three that she wanted because she stumbles on a question and she really wanted to get her freedom as well. But she puts herself aside for the good of the kingdom and for the Sterics as well. So they do manage to escape. There is a tussle with the Chernabog, but they get away from him. And then with Sergei's help, they get him, they get the Steric King back to the cottage in the woods Meanwhile, the Chernabog's pissed off. Meanwhile. He's going to burn Irina and everyone else. And Irina says, no, 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 no. Here, I'll lead you through the glass. And you can- Here, let me, here's the key to the kingdom. But again, for her, she's trying to protect Lithfish. She's at herself. I get it. And she doesn't know any of the actual steric. Like, it makes some sense. Yeah. So she lets him go there. And then the king back at the cottage- realizes that he can't get back on his own, but he senses a part of his kingdom somewhere nearby. And that is where the nut from the mother tree comes in to affect, but it needs to be planted. Because Stepan is still holding on to it and it needs to be planted in winter, but there's no winter here. So Miriam takes it and puts it in the tub out back and just so happens at that point. It was one of the like gateway, like Stargate portal situations that Irina had used and at that same point uh, Irina was trying to come back from leading the Chernabog into the Stair Kingdom she finds the nut in her hand she finds a hand rather than going through it pulls the nut out a squirrel steals it and like kind of shows her where to plant it so then they yep folks does squirrels know what's up (laughs) so then they plant it and then Miriam's family do a blessing to get it to grow the tree blooms incredibly quickly becomes a tree like overnight or sorry, in seconds, they put the <laughs> king 
to it. And this is enough for him to call the Sterk Road in order to go home. On his return home, he asked Miriam to come with him. And he says, she will, she says she will only go if he promises to bring her back. He says, I can only bring you back at the winter. So basically the first day of winter, she can return, but she'll be stuck in the kingdom for six months. They go, they have the battle with the Sterk, or sorry, with the Chernabog. And it's Miriam who gets the Chernabog to come. The day. <laughs> yes. So Miriam gets the Chernabog to come up through the crack in the mountain and over all these mounds of silver that she had placed there when she was cleaning out the storeroom uh, to try to attack her and consume her. And this is when she uses all the magic she can find. And she starts turning all those coins into gold, which as the silver bound the Sturt King, gold binds the Chernabog. So it starts burning off his flesh and he's trying to get away. But meanwhile, all this gold is compounding on him, compounding on him. And as he's trying to squeeze back through the crack in the mountain, he's like leaving molten gold that has helped sealing the crack and protecting the Stair Kingdom. And when he comes out of that, he eventually manages to get back to the mortal realm where he is now as powerful as an ant and is yelling mm-hmm. at, at Irina about how he will come back to power. And he's literally a lump of coal at this point. And he tries to get back into uh, the czar. And this is where, again, the wording has to work out. So uh, Irina says, I told you that for return for giving you the stair king, I wanted me in mine. And a a wife's claim is more than a mother's. So that is mine. And basically then a chamber maid throws a pot of sand over it and kills the Chernabog. And we all live happily ever after. So that was like spoilers within spoilers going deeper into the spoilers that I already told you, but hopefully that makes more sense about the book. Uh, and it's like, it's it, like us recapping it. I feel like not that it doesn't do it justice because it certainly does, but like there were so many little pieces throughout. It was like a little puzzle and it was just so much. I mean, obviously it was better to read it than to listen to, to, listen us to us. Yeah. but like, I think that it was just a really impressive storyline because it wasn't a line. It was like a little, it was a ball of yarn (laughs) that gets knitted into this beautiful, beautiful mattress of story. (laughs) (laughs) And I did want to touch on this too, because we talked about it in the last book with the Ruthless Lady's Guide to Wizardry, how there was quite a few missed opportunities And it seemed like the exact opposite was true for spinning Mm -hmm. silver as there were so many setups that paid off later in the book. And I wanted to just touch on those again quickly uh, about ones that you appreciated uh, or ones that you picked up on. So was there one specifically out of that stuff we just talked about that you thought was like, I don't know, maybe you didn't see coming or that you were like, oh, okay, like, yeah, that makes sense how that happened before. And now we're tying it back together at the end. So, I mean, I know we talked about it quite a bit, but like the cabin in the woods being like basically the connection between both the, both the realms, but also like two of our, our protagonists. Um, I really enjoyed that. I liked the nut and the connection to like Wanda's mom or family or whatever, and how that really comes very much in handy <laughs> later on. We hear it a couple of times with Stepan too, where he's like, do I bury the nut here? Like he thinks about burying yeah. the nut at the mantle stands. And he's like, well, I, I but he can't doesn't. because Wanda right. and Sergey aren't here. And then, you know, he tries to bury the nut when they first get back to the cottage after doesn't. they leave Disney up, but it doesn't work. And he knows there's just like a wrong feeling about it. Mm-hmm. So like this, 
obviously uh, when a tree just strokes a child's face and gives it a nut, you know that it's going to come up later on. But oh yeah, again, what we talked about earlier with how the limited knowledge we had about the sterics and how they work, we didn't know that they needed, you know, he needed that kind of like connection. Yeah. That connection to, to create the road. And so that still surprised me that, you know, and obviously it's a little feisty and bow with Irina and Miriam handing it off to each other through the, through the, yeah. but I mean, still like it's a fairy tale. So that was a really cool way to bring something that he probably had for what, 150 pages back into right. the book. It's one of those setups that was how, what I missed so much in the last book where it's like, yes, that's what you're looking for. That's the payoff you want because it does, it adds so much more to the story because you're connected to that nut. That's their mother, you know? And totally, they, totally. They say that with the, with the, the blessing that Miriam's family gives is it also releases the spirit of those that may be trapped somewhere. So that's also like them saying goodbye to their mother. Uh, and their siblings that have passed. Yeah. yeah be, because uh, Wanda even touches on it when her and Sergey go back to town later on and they go to their house and to bury their father and they talk to the tree and they know their mother is no longer in the tree. Yeah. Uh, so it's another one of those, just a lot of layers to it that, you know, again, I would have never thought to write that. So it's one of those beautiful moments, I think that you have. I agree. And I feel like there were just a lot of good, for lack of a better term, feisty and both situations, like the situation with Wanda's father and how basically they were going to be not convicted of, What's well, the word I'm like, blamed for? Blamed for. Sergey um, was going to be hung. I mean, they just yeah. Knew. Well, I mean, they just like assumed that they were going to be the ones that took the fall for their dad dying, which like he wasn't. Anyway, neither here nor there. But the the feisty and bow aspect of it, where like Arena and the Czar essentially have given them this like letter of pardon, and they are able to go back to their town and like present that to everyone even though all they were doing was like collecting their crap and burying their dad, like, and well, getting the goats from the Madison's house. That was important. They were telling everyone their debts were forgiven too. Yes. Oh, that's right. Which like, obviously everyone's going to be like, thank you. Yes. I'm cool with that. (laughs) I guess we won't hang you if you're going to forgive our debts. Right. I just like, I appreciated the full circling aspect to the stories and like we said before so so much of a puzzle like everything's all interconnected and then you've got things from before coming back later and it was just a very pleasant fairy tale yeah and we we touched on this earlier with the czar like we didn't know if the czar was going to die at the end like i think i assumed that that mm-hmm. that somehow she would defeat the chernabog yeah. and the czar would go with him or yeah she would find a way to keep the chernabog out but I, I thought that was less believable until it happened and i touched on this quite a few times but her whole phrasing and over and over again especially after they capture the stair king the chernabog immediately ask for something ask me for something ask me for something anything Irina. i will give you anything and she she says to him over and over again no i don't want anything from you just me and mine just what we agreed on before me and mine you cannot have me and mine and so then he comes back you know this little lump of coal and he tells her that the stark you know she's tricked him and the stark king has has kicked me out of his kingdom and i've been defeated but i will regain my power and you know, I think he makes a move for Magda and, and she's like, no, me and mine. And he's like, fine, I will take the chambermaid who has come in. And she says, no, 
me and mine and all of Litvis is mine. I look after them. They are mine. And then he says, okay, I'll go after the czar. And she says, no, me and mine uh, one last time. And, and then he is able to be defeated. And I think you pointed this out earlier. That's when we see the czar actually look at her with real love. And it was discussed. We learn it in the, towards the last three quarters of the book, the czar never asked for this. Like his mother was the one who made a deal with a demon and, and for her, you know, to, for her to become the queen and then for her to leave the czar, the child that would eventually become the czar. And she gave up her son for it. So he's the one that pays the price for his mother's want and greed. And she is burned as a witch when he is young. And then he, she deserved that. She definitely deserved that. And then he talks about, you know, how his brother and his father die under mysterious circumstances. And Irina realizes that he loved his brother and that that's just more suffering he has gone through that uh, has been caused by this Chernobogan by his mother. Can we just talk about for a second when he explained to her that he loved his brother or she realizes that he loved his brother and he was all like, who do you think taught me to kill squirrels? What? Like, was that your bonding moment? Because I have a problem with that. Like, I loved my psychotic brother. I mean, he taught it, me how to be psychotic. Yay. It, yeah, it didn't mean he was a good guy. Nobody ever said his no. was a good guy, you know? But I was like, wait a minute, Irina. Like, great that he loved his brother. But, like, maybe that guy didn't also didn't deserve to be czar or whatever. Like, yeah, another. Not killing squirrels. Such a bad subject for Tasha to have to cover uh, of all the animals. But the last thing I wanted to touch on on the czar too, which I thought was a nice moment where it showed his humanity because he was portrayed as such a cold and douchebag, which he was. Blame the Chernobog for most of it, not all of it. He was still a douchebag too. But Mm -hmm. that moment where they're stuck in that smaller house on their travels and they're sharing the room with their servants. So there's expectations that they will sleep together. And you can see it that even as he was trying all these days to get her alone so he could devour her soul or whatever the Chernobog does, he is not comfortable sharing a bed, having sexual relations with her. And she basically starts jumping up and down on the bed, you know, feigning telling him to do it. And at the end he cries. He like, he just like laughs, I think, and then cries because it's such a relief to him. And I think that's a moment that obviously pays off for them at the end where like he sees her true character and she sees a little glimpse of him that's maybe worth saving if she can. So I appreciated that too, because before that he's painted as an utter douchebag. And then you see kind of these couple cracks in it that say, maybe it's not him. Maybe he was actually dealt a, a bad hand. So question for you regarding that. Do you get vibes that, he was I mean I I definitely feel like he wasn't ready to be intimate for sure but like was it because he preferred dudes or was that just his his dude cousin who like kept coming on to him like was do you think that he was into dudes or do you think he just wasn't comfortable with the situation in general I mean like it can be both obviously but I think it was touched on briefly I, I think what makes him nervous about it. I believe he has slept with both men and women before. Okay. But the Chernobog always kills them. 
Right. So I think that played more part in it where at that point they had come up with a plan. So maybe he was hopefully seeing some light at the end of the tunnel, but also maybe to him, it was the relief of knowing that like that side wouldn't be let loose of him because he talked about that too with uh, Ilias, his cousin there. He's like, he can write me all the poetry he wants, but if he really ever found himself, it, he was worried that at some point he would be brave enough to sneak into his bed. And then that, and then the was, and that yeah. yeah. So, and I think that was why he like turned off his engagement from the princess or something like that. Cause he actually like, yeah, that's right. So I, I think it was, I don't think it was, his choice in, in intimate partners. I think it was more the fear of losing control and having the turn of and having somebody die. Yeah. Okay. That, yep. That makes sense. So beyond that, I think the, the other big one for me was turning the silver into gold and having that attack the, the Chernobog and just having that be in place because of the whole storeroom thing. So another just situation where Miriam was trying to protect herself and, and trying to figure out a way around the deal she struck but it ends up turning, you know, it's another one of those things. There's something in books where something that has an obvious purpose, obviously Mm. she moved the silver out of the storeroom to complete her task and trick the king. But when it has a secondary Mm -hmm. purpose later on, that means so much more to me. So especially I think having read Ruthless before this, I think was such a, it's unfair. And I I would have, I would have hated it if it was the other way. Because then my like antenna for Mrs. Tottenham, especially, would have been even higher. It was already <laughs> ridiculous. So it was quite a bit of those things that just kind of happened. I mean, even the small thing of her being able to use her silver necklace to to tie the chain together to bind him, like and how when uh, Marion was trying to get the Sarah King free, that necklace was the only area she was able to break. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And he was willing to. She. He that was a kill him. Yeah, that was, that was just a moment. When it's like the turnabout coming at them down the tunnels, and they're like, "Well, shit, we gotta get out of here." Like I was, I thought they were done for. And he even says he would rather her kill him with the shovel than. And she it. was like, "I'm not gonna do that." Although I did appreciate how she was like, "Okay, don't look at me." And that's when she discovered, "Turn over, and that'll kill you." Oh wait, uh, a solution. <laughs> <laughs> thank God you turned over. I was just like, yeah, thank God, God I'm not like, capable. Yeah, thank yeah. God I'm not capable of killing you while you're looking at me. And that was one last thing. So what ends up happening is when they he brings. Miriam back on the first day of winter and they had been working together and you kind of mentioned it earlier to tie into our fairy tales. It's like beauty and the beast where like you were saying, it's not quite Stockholm syndrome, but they were working together and they were like bringing the mountain back to life. And like, she was keeping track of things because they had no need for numbers. And she was showing like the growth of the different wineries or whatever vineyards or whatever they were. And like what places had water and what places didn't and the fish that they ate and all this stuff. So she was like, a right-hand person at bringing their mountain back to life. I also got the impression like during that sort of like rebuilding time that like he, he, they were both doing their own thing. Like I didn't get the impression that he was like trying to court her or like anything. I, yeah, but she did also see like the softening in him where like he stopped wearing his royal garb and was wearing like the same clothes, like yeah, it wasn't like as you know, rough sewn stairs, but yeah. it was like more ordinary co- clothes and things like that. And he was getting his hands dirty as well as they worked. So I think that was them bonding, which happened very quickly in the book. It was only a few pages, but then when they cut, co- when he returns her to the family, 
is when he proposes and he brings the entire kingdom with him to propose to her. Just a casual whole kingdom. Just a casual kingdom on his back. And so he proposes to her and he gives the dowry of gold and jewels and all these things and asks for her hand. And basically she says, yes, but uh, <laughs> if we do this, we're going to do it my way. And, uh, you know, we're going to do it the Jewish way. And that was very important to her that they stand with her customs. And he agrees to everything. And her mother says, and she gets to come home whenever she wants. And he agrees to that. And they go through and have a real Jewish wedding uh, where she says at the end, he signed his real name on the paperwork, but I'll never tell you what it is. And that's how the book ends. Which is so cute. So cute. And again, talking about the power of names, such like a, he had, because he fought so hard to protect it and he was willing to die to protect his name and then he gives it to her freely and that was something i think one of her first questions was what was his name or what was she supposed to call him and he was like you foolish mortal thing yeah like i would yeah. just give you that power over me blah 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 so it was a nice little full circle moment i also think that this is the first time that we've actually mentioned that miriam and her family are jewish which i think was obviously very integral to like her storyline in terms of like being a moneylender and having the stigma around uh, she brings up a few times I think one of the times before she knows she's gonna be going to the Steric Kingdom how she like kind of finishes up some of her collecting so to speak or she didn't even have to collect she just like went into town to like be viewed to be visible to people and like I appreciated how she just like she owned it she just she rocked it you know what I mean? Like she, she knew that people were going to look down on her or hate her or, or disparage her, but she didn't give a fuck. Yeah. They had and to, I love it. And they had to deal with stereotypes. The, the Jewish community yeah. was the minority, both in their small town and also in Visnia. They had the Jewish quarter and, and they were looked down upon by others. Like it was a big deal that her grandfather had been called upon by the Duke like three or four times. It was like respected by the Duke. Even. Right. Yeah. Even though, even though he was a Jew. So that was, right. Um, you're right. That is something that was very important uh, throughout the story because it kind of defined some of their motives. Like when we said her dad said to forgive the debts, it was kind of like trying to, you know, we don't need it. We're trying to give you some of the wealth that we acquired through this luck or, or fate or whatever. And he wanted to make sure that people didn't hate them and think of the stereotype of, oh, they're just, you know, they're after us for our money. And it's, it's so crazy because those people borrowed the money. <laughs> like, right. You know? Well, and I thought it was interesting too, like a couple of times, I think Miriam brings up some of her like relatives, maybe like uncles or something that were like living in a different location, like a different country. I think they called them like the summer islands or whatever somewhere where it's like not winter all the time or whatever yeah. but like they're still facing persecution basically or segregation or whatever and like I just I thought it was interesting because that was something I mean this is like a fairy tale land but like and I'm not Jewish but like I feel like that's something that I can understand those sort of stereotypes that have been put on them and like that whole it was just weird having the the juxtaposition of like something that I recognized and understood in this like world of, of fantasy, which yeah. like, whatever, of course, but it just, I don't know. It was like, I think it stood out more to me because it was something recognizable. Like you could have, not that she should have, but like she didn't come up with like a different religion, call it something different that had the same connotation. 
right. or prejudices against them or whatever. You know, I, I think it was interesting that she chose to use exactly the thing that every reader would be familiar with. Yeah. It gives you something that you can relate to, like you were saying. Yeah. Uh, it is like a centering point in this world of me sure. where you're like, okay, no, okay. I, yep. I get that. I understand yeah. this. Yeah. 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 And I think too, like something you had brought up about her Naomi Novik's like background, she's Polish or something. Yeah. Um, So like the fairy tale aspect and the whole Jewish aspect, I think like just really interesting to, to feel the connection to the author in that way, like coming, coming forward in that. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it feels like she's pulling from some, uh, if not personal history, familiar history. Uh, sure. like it, it, it makes it more real yeah yeah you can, you can feel that coming through the pages the last thing I wanted to touch on in spoilers and it's not really a spoiler but just a piece of imagery that I thought was really beautiful was at her cousin's wedding um, mm. where they're dancing and they get everybody dancing together and it's through Wanda's eyes and she talks about how her and her brothers don't know what they're doing you know because they don't know this the, what they're dancing and she doesn't understand the words they're saying because they're not Jewish but you know Mrs. Mandelstrom holds out her hand to her and of course she's not going to say no to her so they get pulled into the circle and they're dancing and then Miriam joins and the Stare King joins and when the Stare King joins they're transported to the Stare Kingdom and they're just dancing and dancing and people are losing track of time and they're under this beautiful cloud this sky surrounded by the white trees and the the, the winter oh, the yeah. but it's not cold it's just this beautiful moment of everyone kind of coming together and it that happens until the dance ends and the stair king lets go of the circle and they find themselves back in reality so i just thought that was a really cool moment that she put in there as well as kind of like a, a an icing on the cake of that celebration icing i see what you did there hey, well, um I also feel like that moment was really Presh Magesh just from like a Steric King standpoint, because I got the impression that that was, I mean, that was like essentially right after, you know, the, the cousin's wedding is right after he kind of fully recognizes Miriam's power or I'm ability. Value, or like, but yeah. Value, yeah, sure. But I think like that was sort of when he started to like fully fall in love with her. And like that moment where they're dancing and he like ac- accidentally transport them, transports them to the Steric Kingdom. I feel like that's him kind of like letting go. You know, it's him like not having that uptight rigor <laughs> that he usually has. Well, definitely, letting it, definitely, letting it definitely because he would never want a mortal in his kingdom. We see that with how he talks about about Miriam. So the fact that he brought them all there, I think, is a big growth moment for him where he's not saying they're equals, but he's saying, like, I'm going to give you a little taste of this magic kind of thing. So, yeah, yeah I think that's I think I it's an thought, added reward for what Miriam did. Do you also oh, you I was envisioning him oh my God, the way I interpreted it was he was like so caught up in like the pleasantness of the situation that he did it accidentally. I don't think he purposefully took them there. I thought that was sort of like a, I'm so, I'm here in this moment and like, whoops. <laughs> it was just so, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't know whose interpretation is right, but that's the way I read it. That it was like, he was just so, he let his guard down yeah. basically. And it yeah. just happened. I'm, I'm not sure. It honestly could be either way, but uh, either way, it was a beautiful moment. So. Absolutely. It was. <laughs> Uh, that was all I had for spoilers. I didn't know if you had anything else before we get out of here. I don't think so. 
with that, then we are going to move out of spoilers. So now we're coming out of spoilers, coming out of spoilers. If you left, please come back because now we're out of spoilers. All right. Coming out of spoilers, we have one last thing to do with this book, and that is to give it our grades. Uh, if this is your first episode with us, I say this every time. I'm sorry if you're tired of hearing it, but we base these books on a D20 scale. So you roll, give it a roll of dice. One is bad, 20 is good. And then we give it a modifier, either adding or subtracting points based on a skill or ability based on a D&D character sheet. So with that, I will go first. I enjoyed this book. Like I said before, the, the breakups in the perspective gave me an opportunity to put it down more, but I do think that that helped it uh, in the end because I felt like instead of just devouring it, I was like pacing myself with it and kind of enjoying it more and, and, uh, and absorbing it more and thinking about it more. And the idea of this fairy tale being more than that and all the different layers and what we talked about before with the connections, especially after reading Ruthless, this kind of connections and all that, that's what I've really been enjoying lately. So it really hit home on that for me. So for a dice roll, I'm going to give it a 16. A lot of things I liked, not a lot of things I didn't like. Uh, so it's a 16 on the dice. And then I'm going to give it a plus two for deception because I felt like both Miriam and Irina uh, were very powerful in deception when it came to dealing with these men that, you know, didn't value them, didn't see how great they were. And they tricked them. As I said before, the Stair King even says, you've, you've, you've tricked me three times, my lady. And obviously I underestimated you. So I really appreciated that. I think deception's a fun little one to play here. So 16 plus two deception for an 18 overall on spinning silver. All right. I was just super struggled last time figuring out what modifier I'm going to give it. Um, but I also had a 16 for my straight roll. <laughs> Shocker, I know. Like Russell said, I also enjoyed this book a lot. I mean, I found the different perspectives was something that kind of made me keep reading a little faster. Or maybe not faster, but just like kept me more page turny the story and all the like puzzle pieces and everything coming together and all the little like feisty and bows were just really pleasing in general. I struggled here. So I wanted, can I do two modifiers? Have we ever? We've never done that. You can do whatever We've you want. We've never done that. Okay. So I mean, like some, initially. Sometimes you're allowed to choose between two. So if you want to give those two, just do whatever you want. Okay. I'm just it's gonna our grading it. system. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to give it a plus two, but I wasn't sure if I wanted to do an insight or religion. So insight, because I feel like kind of along the same lines as your modifier, like the reasons behind your modifier, like the fact that these ladies were just so badass and they kind of had more ability than people were giving them credit for. There's no badass modifier. So <laughs> I kind of having to like work, work with what I've got here. I don't know. I don't know if that's the appropriate, appropriate modifier. So my other alternate would be uh, religion. So maybe I'll give like a plus one inside it and a plus one religion <laughs> because I appreciated the correlation to Jewish culture, Jewish religion, and the fact that, you know, Wanda and her brothers, who basically got adopted by the Mandelstams at the end of the book, like that's kind of, they were part of the family. You know, they, at a few points, at least Wanda for sure, 
has said like, you know, I don't, I don't really understand what, what's happening here. Cause I don't think religion was ever, I mean, obviously not Jewish religion, but like any religion was part of their life growing up. At least, also, well, I mean, I guess they did go to church. She also didn't speak Hebrew though. So right. that was a lot of her confusion. Yes. But even then, like, there's all these things that she was sort of like attributing to the Jewish religion, which wasn't like the math and all that stuff. I think she was kind of like melding the two things when really they just because that was her experience with it, which makes sense. But I also appreciated that the Sarah King and, you know, the whole bit with the nut in the tree and growing and singing that song that they did to make it grow and stuff. I just like a nod to all of that and like a, a lovely representation. <laughs> yeah. Even, um, even with the stair kingdom, like it wasn't necessarily portrayed as a religion, but like mm-hmm. their beliefs and, you know, the idea that if you do something three times, you've proven the magic right. and like that. So like it wasn't necessarily portrayed as a religion, but definitely portrayed as a belief system that sure. is how their kingdom ran as well. Right. That's actually a really good point. Yeah. So I'm going to stick with my, Maybe my, my double modifier. So right. 18. First time for everything. Double modifiers. Uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, so it's on allowed. That. It's really loud. Hey, it's our, it's our show. We can do whatever we want. And if you're the DM, you can do whatever you want. People, That's also you know, true. Go along with it. So with that, we're now moving away from the book. Again, one last time, it is Spinning Silver by Naomi Novik. Uh, check it out. Got double 18. So that means you should read it. For sure. Also, double 18s on our 18th episode. Also, my, my like, I mean, my other lucky number is 13, but my other, other lucky number is 18. So many things at once. We're also both born on the 18th day of our respective months. Oh my God. This is a very fortuitous episode. 18 everywhere. All right. So moving away from the book, we will now go jump into our segments. First one up is things we missed. Re-listening to last time's episode. Was there anything that you thought of that we missed? No, I don't. I'm not good at this question. I feel like I need to listen with like more of a critical eye or ear. So I bring it up. Sometimes we skip this, but there was something that popped in my head. I was listening to it yesterday when I was walking and it's just a dumb story, but thinking about the, how they were wearing that hat, that was like a bucket kind of bucket nail thing. Uh, It reminded me in seventh grade, we formed the band man. Okay. Our band flipped Saeed, even though we had one person who played guitar and every there was like six members. Oh, I think we had a drummer, although he wasn't even really friends with us, but he was going to be in the band, we thought. So we all came up with names that we were going to be. And there was this guy who was a bassist or a guitarist, I don't remember at the time, named Buckethead, who would literally wear a bucket on his head while he played music. He was like in a band, a real band. And I thought that was cool. So I wanted my name to be Buckethead. So I remember... I think our Wait friend, a minute. This buckethead person was like a real he is a real person. Like yes. not somebody. Not, wow. So like seventh grade, math is hard, like uh 20 years ago. I don't even know what band he was in, but yeah, there's a guy named Buckethead. So I thought that'd be a cool name. So I thought I'd be Buckethead too. So I think our friend Smith was the one who like made a little poster on like an eight and a half by eleven and wrote all our stage names and said Buckethead. So Stupid, Amazing. but Amazing. that story popped in my head. So I thought I would share and hopefully Sully remembers that. Otherwise I look like a crazy person. Cause he was also in the band uh, and is the only me and him are the only members still remaining. So we did Aww. it. That's we're in seventh grade. We didn't even play instruments. what do you expect? So <laughs> not much. I mean, that's fair. Moving away from that. We jump into current selection, what we are currently reading or have recently finished. Uh, Taj, go ahead. 
Well, so I recently finished the third book of the Tamarir series by Naomi Novik called Black Powder War. Um, and now I'm reading the fourth book, Empire of Ivory. How is it reading compared to listening? Because you were worried about that. Yeah, so um, it's fine. I think, honestly, part of me when I'm reading and like hearing the narrator from the first two books that I listened to, kind of like projecting the voices, like Tamarir the dragon has kind of a, he's narrated with like quite a distinctive voice. And I totally feel like I read it that way. No, I like it. What does it sound like? Can you give us a... I'm not. Nope. Nope. <laughs> nope. 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 I tried. I tried. Yeah. Yeah. Um, kudos to you. It's also like this book, I think, not necessarily more so, but just in general, like I know we talked about before with like genre style, like these are like Horatio Hornblower, very much like that. And like the way that people are talking to each other is very stiff, stiff upper lip British sailor man. Like respect, I don't know. Like, pray, don't do that. Like, you know, they, they just have a funny way of speaking. I guess I say funny for our normal 2022 times. but I am enjoying them immensely. I bought the last three of the series of nine from Thrift Books and they should be arriving shortly. They were out for a while and I was like, God, how am I going to get them? What if I get there before they come? I'm not going to, but nice. um, I'm really, really enjoying those. And I'm also listening to um, Johannes Cabal, The Necromancer. That one's interesting. I was telling Russell earlier that I'm not hundred percent certain. I feel confident that it is a book I would recommend to him. It has some Ruthless Lady Guide to Wizardry uh, vibes, which may or may not be a good thing. I am enjoying it so far, but I was telling Russell, it's like a very, the, the narration in audiobooks makes or breaks things, obviously. But I also feel like it, it means it's more difficult for me to recommend something. Because sometimes I I may enjoy the narration so much more than I would the book if I were reading it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like absolutely. it adds a layer of. Yeah, it's a different form of entertainment because you're yeah. hearing, you know, assuming the author had something to do with it. This is how they wanted it to sound. This is how they expected people to read it. But it's like a text message. Ten people will read the same message ten different ways. Exactly, and like the, I don't know. It's um very stylized. I guess I'd say way of storytelling but so far it's been fun i've i've enjoyed it so yeah nice. i'll keep you posted on when i'm done with that there's more to the series i think there's three or four of them yes oh yeah no i looked it up uh on thrift books there and there's quite a few of the cabal are there more than oh, okay i mean i i don't know there's definitely a handful though so yeah okay i mean there uh, it's interesting like the way that it's written is interesting like i said it's sort of stylistic uh in a way and I mean, anybody who like just goes, goes into hell to make a deal with Satan, like it's, there are funny bits to us selling wrestle, like I laughed out loud. They made fun of bureaucracy, which is always fun. Like <laughs> guy in purgatory who's like in charge of the forms is like, it's fun. You know, I don't know. It's a uh, to be continued on that front. Nice. 
Um, speaking of which, the first book I finished uh, this past two weeks was The Awakened Mage by Karen Miller. I touched on it briefly last episode because I had read the first book. This was the, the second and final book in that short series there. I have already sent those to Taja in her gift package because I really enjoyed them. I enjoyed how the story came full circle. There were some surprises. It wasn't a, you know, it wasn't all happy endings and beautiful roses. Like there was actually some loss and there were some unexpected moments. So I appreciate that because I hate, hate when everyone survives. Even if you love a character, sometimes it steals the book away from the book. If you know, there's such great stakes and somehow every it's, it's Torin uh, jumping off and somehow surviving when the wall collapses, uh, when the ice dragon breaks through. I understand that we all love Torment at that point, but it was okay for him to die. Kind of takes um, away from it. I was going to give you a hard time because like we love the feisty and bow, but I do recall reading some feist recently where I texted you and I was like, I love this character. And then like five pages later, he was dead. And I was like, yeah. ah. even feist <laughs> will get you sometimes. Yeah. Um, so uh, aside from that, I read this book, uh, the devil in the white city that I touched on before briefly, this is way different than something I normally read. And I didn't know that even picking it up, but it's kind of funny because Amanda had a copy of this and years ago, I bought a copy of it because I had heard they were going to make a show out of it or a movie. And I was like, Oh, that seems interesting. Did they? Uh, it's still in pre-production because of COVID and everything, <laughs> but uh, supposedly Keanu Reeves is now signed on. So they're, and instead, instead of a movie, it's going to be a TV show. Oh, okay. So we'll see. We'll see. But it's a historical nonfiction novel. So uh, Larson, the author, he, he found like a bunch of letters and speeches and different things uh, surrounding the 1893 World Fair. And he told the story about how the fair was built and how people went to it, but also how it hid a serial killer. Uh, and, and a psychopath before even psychopaths were like a thing people talked about. So <laughs> it was interesting. It was a little dry in places because it is that nonfiction where you feel bogged down when you're talking about 17 different types of geraniums. But uh, what? I know. So there was a little bit of skipping around at one point uh, where I just didn't care about the floral uh, patterns anymore because the guy who helped design the fair uh, designed Central Park. So he really cared about the floral designs. So I get that it was important, but there's some of that in there that I was like, okay, that's a lot. But Maybe uh, you should have been envisioning tiny people living in the forest. I should have been. So, but it was interesting. And, and there was so much I learned about the 1893 fair that I never knew. As I told Tasha, that was uh, the birthplace of PBR. So it, it won the brewing competition at the Chicago World Shout out fair. to Neil. It was also the birthplace of the Ferris wheel. So uh, just some stuff I never knew. And like the whole point of the midway that you see at every July 4th carnival or whatever, it was because where the Ferris wheel was, was it was called midway in Chicago. So that whole phrase and terminology, why there's always a Ferris wheel in the midway was from the 1893 fair. Is the Ferris wheel named Ferris because somebody Ferris? Yes. The man who designed it was, uh, I think it, I forget his first name, but it, his last name was Ferris. Uh, his first name wasn't wheel. Will Ferris? No, Wheel. Wheel. No, it was not. <laughs> and Ferris then another, not a wheel. Uh, no. And then another <laughs> book I read, uh, which Tasha had given me, was The Hunting Party by Lucy Foley, which I'm not sure if she touched on it before or not. It was a quick read. I read it in a day. It was okay. It was a mystery that I think some of the mysteries were pretty put in front of you. I'd say there was three major ones and two out of the three I figured out way beforehand. The, the biggest issue I had with it was the name, the hunting party. I don't 
get it because uh, they did point. they did go on a hunt at one point it lasted 10 pages but like it, it didn't really have to do with the book so that was my biggest takeaway was that it should have had a different name uh so take with that I whatever you like want. the title of the book was like a way to draw people in I agree. And I remember you sent this to me wondering what I would think about it. I, I don't think it was a high recommendation from you. No, it was not. I looked at it and I was like, okay, it's quick chapters, pretty big words. I think I can read it before this show. And I expected it to take me like two days and took me one. So it, it got a TBR off the shelf. So I was pretty happy about yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I was meh about that one for sure. So moving away from current selection, we have random recommendation, which this week it is my turn and I am recommending an oldie, but a goodie. So this is The Last Unicorn uh, by Peter S. Beagle. So this is a classic fantasy tale. Uh, it was originally written in 1968 and it follows a unicorn who believes that she is the last of her kind. So she leaves her little like gully, her little home to discover what happens to the others to the others. And basically she comes across the, the great red bull, I believe it is, that has been devouring her kind and she has a face off with it. And then things kind of go from there. And so she meets an old magician and like an old con artist that become her traveling troupe. And this is a book that a lot of people have leaned on for fantasy in times past. And it was also an animated movie, I believe in the er- early eighties. So that I was just going to say, I've never read the book, but I have thousand percent watch that movie so the last unicorn uh if you haven't read it i'd recommend it some of the wording is a little eh, but it's still a good story and it is a backbone for a lot of fantasy writers so i think it's important to check out if you haven't or if you haven't seen the movie i will say our friend charlie who has read the book and watched the movie he says the movie is one of his favorite things of all time so the movie's great chelsea and i used to watch that like all the time <laughs> so there you have it that is it for our show, except we need to tell you what's on the next podcast. So on the next episode, we are going back. It's our second time going back to an author. Uh, this time it's back to TJ Klune. We're covering his latest book, Under the Whispering Door, uh, which came out late last year. This was something that I picked up because I loved, uh, well, we both loved The House in the Cerulean Sea so much that we wanted to get more into his writing. Uh, it does seem a little darker, but we'll see how it goes. Your little blurb is a life and death love story between a man who lives to help the dead and a man who died then learned to live. I'm like ready. Yeah. I'm so, so ready. It's going to be so cute. Expect a romance on our next episode. So with that, I think we went a little long. It's tough to tell. You guys don't know it, but we took a couple of pee breaks in between here. This time. <laughs> so this is Ben the ABC Pod, the adult book club with Taja and Russell. Keep Keep reading. reading.